Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, Carlos, a.k.a. CJ. Uh, it is Saturday morning, 9 a.m., and want to welcome everyone to the Schiller Institute conference that we will begin simulcasting here very soon. I uh, just also want to thank uh, Harley Schlanger and his work over at the Schiller Institute uh, for affording this, uh, the opportunity to simulcast this uh, to, uh, to our audience. Uh, just such a, an important discussion. Uh, so please go over to the schillerinstitute.com, uh, bookmark their site, and um, you know keep in touch with everything that the Schiller Institute, Helga Zeppelin-Rouche, Harley Schlanger, the multitude of talented uh, individuals they have over at the Schiller Institute. And don't forget to also go over to the LaRouche organization. Uh, they also are uh, you know doing some amazing work to really help us navigate uh, through the current uh, climate that we're operating in. Um, and again, you know, want to thank them for the opportunity. We do have full permission to be uh, simulcasting this um, uh, live stream, this uh, conference that's going to begin uh, starting here real soon. Uh, so I thought I would uh, jump on and, and welcome everyone. And we are simulcasting this across uh, not only the Rogue platform, but also the, the Gadfly platform, uh, really to, to try to get the message out to a, a larger audience, getting people to uh, to listen to some ideas and solutions as we navigate through uh, just some you know really crazy times, and um, it's a, it's a great list of panelist discussions. You can also, um, if for some reason something happens to this stream, you can go over to the Schiller Institute's uh, YouTube channel, and and they have the stream going there as well. So again, it's a, it's a two day conference. The first panel will be this morning at nine a.m. The second panel will be followed up at 2 p.m. this afternoon. And then tomorrow on Sunday, they'll kick things off again. Uh, Harley Schlinger will be uh, moderating uh, that portion of it. I uh, want to also give a shout out. Again, we're just waiting for the discussion to begin. It should kick off any time. And also want to welcome those in the chat room. So, yes, uh, good morning, uh, Kendra uh, from Indiana. Thank you for, for being here. Uh, Jen, Jen, thank you for being here as well. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, good morning from Vegas. You're up nice and early. I believe it's 6 a.m. there, Vegas time. So either either you had a great night and you're just getting home or you're up early and joining the converse, conversation. So this will be kicked off uh, real soon. Again, um, the Schiller Institute, I uh, want to thank them again. You can look in the description of this video to see the full discussion. And it appears that the stream is up and just waiting for the moderator to take over the call. The conference and I will be uh, dropping off and uh, displaying this in full screen. Uh, once the moderator starts, good morning from England, good morning, um, uh, Julie, 
Uh, good morning, Linda, as well. Uh, thank you for listening in from New Orleans and, and also Julie from England. Wow, thank you. Uh, but this is starting off. If someone, once the conference starts and the audio feed is coming through, if you could just just do me a favor and ping in the chat room that the audio is is uh, is is clear. I would really appreciate it. Uh, not that we ever have any a lot of problems. I just want to want to verify. Uh, you know, this is a, a multitude of different presenters. And again, if you look through the description of this video, you can actually see the agenda, uh, the fallout for the rollout for this conference. So thank you for tuning in. I'm going to drop off right now. Um, Kevin, thank you for that. Greetings, Marcel uh, from the Netherlands. And uh, this is going to be kicking off real soon. So uh, I'm going to drop off for now and I will uh, join the conversation as, as need be. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, also do us a favor. Please make sure to to share this, uh, share this conference in your network, your social media sites that you participate in. Good Here morning we go. and good day to people all over the world that have joined us for today's online conference of the Schiller Institute for the common good of all people not rules benefiting the few. We're beginning this morning with a musical offering, Mozart's Laudate Dominum, which will be performed by the Schiller Institute Chamber Singers, Michelle Aaron Soprano.
The first panel of our conference has been entitled, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, War with Russia and China is Worse Than Mad. Uh, though the saying, whom the gods will destroy, they first make mad, is often attributed to Euripides, it's not entirely clear who first said it. When a god plans harm against a man, he first damages the mind of the, ma the man he is plotting against. It's a formulation attributed to another ancient Greek poet who's unknown. But whoever said it, the importance of that sentiment is not lost on us, particularly today. Mad in our title also refers to mutual and assured destruction, uh, the doctrine of nuclear warfighting uh, that had prevailed since particularly the aftermath of the Second World War, often attributed to uh, Henry Kissinger and others, and a doctrine which was fought against and which was given an alternative by the economist and statesman, Lyndon LaRouche. What we're going to do in our opening is to reference some, wor some words of Lyndon LaRouche, uh, who wrote a, uh, a work entitled The End of Our Delusion. And it had a section entitled The Force of Tragedy. Lyndon LaRouche said, it is essential today if we are to locate the root of our present calamity, that what the United States of America has done to itself since the death of Franklin Roosevelt, but also more noticeably since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy is a full-blown tragedy in the strictest understanding of the principles of the classical drama of Aeschylus, Shakespeare, and Friedrich Schiller. The meaning of tragedy is not limited to a case of a death or suffering which could have been avoided. In its strict classical meeting, it treats the case in which the victim, which may be an individual or an entire society, destroyed himself or itself as a result of a generally accepted belief or the same thing, a habituated tradition. In that strict use of the term tragedy, the recent behavior or lack of appropriate behavior by the campaign money conscious United States Congress has been truly tragic in the full meaning of the term. In applying that conception to the specific case of our presently crisis-stricken United States of America, we must refer to the role of what both ancient classical Greek and modern classical scientific culture recognize by the strict use of the term dynamics as a term of Gottfried Leibniz's scientific method, the method expressed by the insertion of Leibniz's concept of the pursuit of happiness into our Declaration of Independence and the premising of our federal republics policy making on the same great principle of happiness under which the notion of the general welfare was inserted into our federal constitution. This use of dynamics by me here means that contrary to the dogmas of the academic and kindred ideologues of romanticism, there are sometime prophets in history, but there are no effective heroes among the typical incumbent leaders of a culture which has entered a truly tragic phase of its existence. 
I speak of the tragedy into which the United States of America entered upon the death of Franklin Roosevelt. And in all classical tragedies, such as those portrayed by Aeschylus, Shakespeare, and Friedrich Schiller, it is the current form of culture of the society as a whole which has failed. A systemic failure of a culture which grips all incumbent leaders of the society's characteristic institutions and also the great majority of the population in general. I know this very well. I was there and I recognized that fact immediately at that time. Mr. LaRouche, uh, who passed away February 12th of 2019. We are now here, but do we recognize where we are? Well, apparently the British destroyer HMS Defender did not recognize where it was a few days ago. And that could have triggered a change in history that even all of the aspirations and achievements of past history could not have reversed. What is posed to us today is the need for the aesthetic education of the emotions of mankind before mankind commits suicide. The transatlantic world's rejection of the principle of classical culture, we will be so bold to suggest today and throughout our panels, is the primary strategic crisis facing all of civilization at this time. Because the principle of power that actually underlies the achievements of all great civilizations lies in the principle of human creativity, the advancement of human creativity, and the creation of those political and cultural institutions that enhance, support, and develop human creativity. It's my honor to introduce, to begin today's panel, Helga Sepp LaRouche, chairman and founder of the Schiller Institute. I greet you, friends of the Schiller Institute, wherever you may be all over the world. These are truly extraordinary times. If the ordinary citizen of any country would be aware how close we are actually to nuclear war, which if it would happen would lead to the annihilation of civilization, I'm sure that there would be a world revolution. We had an extremely dangerous moment on April 13 of this year, when two US warships were about to enter the Black Sea and a large mass, mass of Russian troops uh, amassed at the Ukrainian border. Now, at that time, it was uh, told to them that they were playing with fire and the two US ships turned around and in the aftermath, the summit between President Biden and President Putin resulted because there was obviously a need, a recognition of the need to have such a strategic dialogue. Now, in this summit, a very important reconfirmation was made, namely the famous sentence which was spoken between President Reagan and President Gorbachev at the time that no nuclear war can ever be won and therefore must never be fought. Now, then in a typical British provocative way, as if to sabotage this dialogue between the United States and Russia before it can develop into an actual relationship to establish strategic stability, on June 23rd, a British 
Royal Navy Destroyer, which Dennis just mentioned, HMS Defender, violated Russian territorial waters in the Black Sea in the region of Cape Fioland. Now, Russian border patrol vessels were delivering warning shots and Russian uh, jets uh, <clears throat> started a warn warning bombing at the HSM Defender Pass of Movement, not on the ship, but on the Pass of Movement. And this way forced the British warship to leave the territorial waters of the Russian Federation. But this caused alarm in all capitals and military headquarters around the world because people recognized what this could have led to. Konstantin Gavrilov, the head of the delegation of the security and arms negotiation in Vienna, uh, <clears throat> said, I warn the ex-rulers of the waves, the British Empire, next time bombs will be dropped not ahead of the target, but on the target. And this was uh, confirmed also by Deputy Foreign Minister Ryabkov. Now, this was not the only <clears throat> incident, but the most provocative for sure. But in the last month of the last year, we had seen a whole pattern of near incidents in the air, near collisions of NATO jets and Russian, Rus Russian vessels uh, last year along the Russian border. Then, People are also <clears throat> very much aware of the Damocles word of provocations around the Taiwanese moves towards independence, possibly followed by Chinese military action and a possible war between the United States and China. Now, it is existential to understand why this is happening and what needs to be done to avoid an otherwise foreseeable catastrophe. Now, if you believe to the Western mainstream media or governments, then they are on the right side of history. They are the defenders of the rules-based order of the free world and Western values against autocratic regimes like Russia and China, <clears throat> who are committing one human rights violation after the other, poison their political opponent, oppress their population in surveillance states, etc., etc. But what makes it so difficult for the ordinary citizen is what has vanished in the recent period is any standard of historical truth. What we see instead is a fight to control the various narratives. Narrative being, you know, an arbitrary account of something. Now, recently in Global Times, um, they discussed that the United States were, quote, othering China, um, and that this would be a prelude to a conflict over Taiwan. And then they quote the Merriam-Webster dictionary to explain what othering means, namely to make another culture appear as a large uniform mass rather than a diverse group of individuals, making that group appear as less human than one's own group. One can also say to other somebody or other another country is to create an enemy image for a coming war. And that is what we are looking at with the recent anti-China, anti 
Russia campaigns. Part of this control of the narrative is naturally the interpretation of recent history. In this way, they count on the very short memory of citizens uh, and they put out <clears throat> narratives such as Putin annexed Crimea uh, and by that logic naturally the British warship did not enter the territorial waters of the Russian Federation but of the Ukraine and that would be legally uh, totally okay. Uh, then another such narrative is NATO never promised the Soviet Union or Russia not to extend eastward. Now let's take a look at this one. Just a couple of weeks ago, the British Royal Institute, this is not yet the right picture, the British Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, otherwise called Chatham House, in May <clears throat> had a report called Miss and misconceptions in the debate about Russia. And they set on to dismantle 16 myths. And in particular, the myth number two, number three about Russia, that the West promised Gorbachev to never expand NATO eastward uh, in discussions around the German unification after the Berlin Wall in November 1989. Now, please, slide one. <clears throat> Here you see a picture of Gorbachev and various other interlocutors at that time. And according to the National Security Archive at the George Washington University, uh, they published in 2017 a report that there are 30 classified documents uh, <clears throat> with the title NATO Expansion, what Gorbachev heard, which has the clear proof that Gorbachev was promised and deceived many times. For example, the interpreter of the Soviet Foreign Affairs Minister Shervenatze, Stepanov Marmalatze, notes, uh, has in his notes from February 1990, reflecting the US Foreign Secretary Baker's assurances to Shervenatze during the Ottawa Open Sky Conference, quote, and if a united Germany stays in NATO, we should take care about non-expansion of its jurisdiction to the east. Also, President H.W. Bush assured Gorbachev at the Malta summit in December 1989, the U.S. would not take advantage of the revolutions in Eastern Europe to harm Soviet interests. Also, on 31st of January 1990, German Foreign Minister Genscher made a major speech in Tutzing, Tutzing Bavaria, uh, that the German unification process must not lead to an impairment of Soviet security interests. Therefore, NATO should rule out any expansion of its territory towards the east, i.e. moving closer to the Soviet border. The formulation closer to the Soviet border was not mentioned in treaties, that is true, but it was mentioned in multiple memoranda and conversations between Soviets and highest level interlocutors like Genscher, Kohl, Baker, Gates, Bush, Mitterrand, Thatcher, Major, Werner, and also Ambassador Medlock and Telchik and others. Slide, the next slide, please. 
this is a memorandum Gorbachev wrote to Baker on the 9th of February 1990. <clears throat> and Baker said, the president and I have made clear that we seek no unilateral advantage in this process. Gorbachev, <clears throat> here on the, on the left, you see the facsimile uh, of these notes. Gorbachev uh, told Kohl on the 10th of February 1990 that the future of Germany in the common European home would be more important uh, and therefore the Tutsing formula of Genscher would be relevant. Kohl on his side assured Gorbachev that NATO should not expand its spheres of activity. Uh, and at that time, there was even talk about a security structure, including the Soviet Union. There are 30 such documents and the leadership of the European Union who was uh, uh, in these processes at the time, obviously have either political amnesia or they are lying when they insist on the contrary. Now we, the La Rouge movement, are not commentaries uh, about this period because we played a very active role by presenting an economic solution uh, to the crisis after the fall of the wall in 1990 in January. We presented, next slide, the productive triangle of uh, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, which was the idea to uh, you know, bring economic development through corridors into the countries of the Comic-Con. Next slide. And in 1991, uh, we presented the Eurasian Land Bridge which could have been a peace plan for the 21st century, uh, which uh, you know is uh, now coming into being in the form of a new Silk Road. But while these promises were made, uh, plans for an unipolar world were already in preparation. The neocons in the United States formed the PDEC, the Project for a New American Century, and they proceeded to plan to re-establish an unipolar world uh, with color revolutions, regime change. Then there was the famous speech by British Prime Minister Blair in 1999 in Chicago, where he practically said, from now on, the peace of Westphalia is obsolete. Uh, international law no longer <clears throat> is in existence. Instead, we have the right to protect we will have humanitarian interventionist endless wars. So they proceeded with that. And as Putin recently in his article for the 80th, 80th anniversary of the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union on the 22nd, 1941, uh, recalls these broken promises. And he says there were five waves of NATO expansion, including uh, into the former uh, Soviet republics, 14 new countries joined the NATO and many countries were put in front of an artificial cho choice to either go with the collective West or with Russia. It was that process which led to the Ukraine tragedy of 2014, uh, you know, where the West openly supported a coup which brought Nazis into a position of power and in the government and in the army. 
And we all remember the infamous word, words of Victoria Nuland, who bragged that the State Department had spent five billion on NGOs in Ukraine leading up to this moment. Altogether, and the <coughs> vote uh, of the people in Crimea to, to join Russia was the result and the response to that Nazi coup in Kiev. And that history has to be straightened out. Now, altogether, NATO expansion eastward was between 800 kilometers, namely from the border of West Germany to the eastern Polish border with Belarus, and 1,000 kilometers uh, between the eastern Norwegian border until uh, the border of Estland, Estland, Estonia. Now, this idea of an unipolar world, <clears throat> which is based on the special relationship between the British and the United States, has the idea that the whole world should be run under globalization, a global empire. And naturally, uh, <coughs> Fukuyama said at the time in 89, that this would be the end of history, that the whole world would adopt the Western democratic model. Now, it is the nature of empires that they tend to overstretch. And this is exactly what has happened. And there is a significant blowback. You should ask your questions, where all these wars, these endless wars which happened ever since, really worth it? Were they all in the interest of the United States or not? Let's take a look at a couple of those. Now the United States and NATO is about to leave most of its troops from Afghanistan after 20 years of war. Now, already in 2019, people should remember, the Washington Post published the Afghanistan papers. Now, these were 2,000 pages uh, <clears throat> retrieved through Freedom of Information Act procedures, which uh, interviewed 400 insiders who gave a ruthless account about the lies, about the supposed success in Afghanistan, the absolute incompetence of conducting this war, in which 2,400 US soldiers had lost their life until 2019, 20,589 military were wounded, and 157,000 lives were lost altogether. These Afghanistan papers quote, for example, uh, Rumsfeld, who said, I have no idea who the enemy is. They quote General Lute, we had no idea what we were dealing with what were we supposed to accomplish? Now, even after the Afghanistan uh, <clears throat> papers were published, uh, NATO presence in Afghanistan continued for two more years. And recently, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan said uh, no to the request of the United States to set up bases in Pakistan to operate operations inside Afghanistan from there. If the most powerful military machine in history was not able to win this war in 20 years, there is obviously no point in having bases in Pakistan to continue this. Let's look at another case. We all remember that Nancy Pelosi, in response to an audience, 
to an audience member in her December 5th, 2019 CNN reported town hall meeting admitted in her, that in her capacity as a ranking member of the intelligence committee, she knew that the basis of the Iraq war was false. She said, so I knew there were no nuclear weapons in Iraq. I, it was just not there. They had to show us they had, uh, <clears throat> because the gang of four, this is a group which normally in the Congress gets informed about intelligence matter, all the intelligence they had, the intelligence did not show for that. That was the case. So I knew it was a misrepresentation to the public. Now, it is very clear that if Pelosi knew, the whole cabinet of the Bush administration had to know. On February 5th, Secretary of State Colin Powell made a presentation to the United Nations Security Council that he had solid proof of weapons of mass destruction being secretly deployed by Saddam Hussein. Please show the video. One of the most worrisome things that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on Iraq's biological weapons is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. Let me take you inside that intelligence file and share with you what we know from eyewitness accounts. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. The trucks and train cars are easily moved and are designed to evade detection by inspectors. In a matter of months, they can produce a quantity of biological poison equal to the entire amount that Iraq claimed to have produced in the years prior to the Gulf War. Now, I don't know how Colin Powell can live with himself because, you know, as Lawrence Wilkerson implied, they all knew ahead of time, and Pelosi admitted it, that these were lies. Now, according to Lawrence Wilkerson, who was the chief of staff of Powell at the time, uh, he said that Powell walked into his office and told him, quote, I wonder how we will feel if we put half a million troops in Iraq and march them from one end to the other uh, in the whole country and find nothing. Now, in the Iraq war, between 150,000 and 1 million people died, depending whose account you look at. Uh, this war cost $2.1 trillion. This is just Iraq. And up to the present day, the country is absolutely devastated. Okay, let's look at another case. Right now, we have the 50th anniversary of the release of the Pentagon Papers, which was a top secret study about the war in Vietnam, and which according to the New York Times demonstrated that the Johnson administration had systematically lied to the public and to the US Congress. Daniel Ellsberg, one of the authors of this report, leaked the papers to the New York Times and the Washington Post and after the injunction by the Department of Justice approached several sitting members of Congress who turned him down and then gave these papers to Senator Mike Cravel, who read them into the record of the Congress in a spectacular operation. 
and Mike Cavell is a hero for that reason. And, you know, we greet him because he worked with the Schiller Institute on very important topics. Now, President Johnson had argued that the aim of the Vietnam War was to secure an independent, non-communist Vietnam. But both Assistant Secretary of Defense, John McNaughton, and Secretary of Defense himself, Robert McNamara, admitted that the real aim to, was to contain China. The administration had secretly enlarged the scope of the operation with coastal raids on North Vietnam and Marine Corps attacks, all blacked out by the mainstream media. As the whole world knows, this war was also a complete disaster. Recently, the 90-year-old Ellsberg wrote about another intervention, because during that same time of the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg also copied another classified study which showed how seriously American military took the threat of nuclear war during the Taiwan crisis in 1958. This study was almost unnoticed for 50 years until in 2017, Ellsberg published it online and the New York Times highlighted that last month. The content is, uh, the, uh, this, the context for this is the present heating up of the crisis over Taiwan. Now these older war games show that the Chinese would win a conventional war over Taiwan and that this uh, would raise the question of the United States resorting to the use of nuclear weapons, uh, just as the co com US commanders had considered in this uh, incident in 1958. Now, a redacted study of the crisis of 1958, written in 1966 for the Rand Corporation by Martin Halperin, and which was classified in 1975, with one removed passage, suggests that senior military leaders, including the Joint Chief of Staff Chairman General Nathan Twining, felt that the use of nuclear was inevitable. Nuclear strikes deep into, the, deep, deep into China would be a necessary response. So Ellsberg called for more whistleblowers to speak out about, about a present debate in the US military about these matters. And one of such whistleblowers did. Franz Gale, who until recently was the science advisor to the US Marine Corps work, working in the Pentagon, published two op-eds in the more or less official Chinese government paper, Global Times, with the title, one of them, the title, why the US will lose a war with China over Taiwan Island. The Washington Post of June 13 reports about this and also about geopolitical debates in the Pentagon uh, <clears throat> that uh, we are possibly sleepwalking into a war between the United States and China. So <clears throat> he said, uh, Franz Gale said, why would I write an op-ed for a communist paper, and is that not outrageous for a civil servant? Well, then he refers to the debates 
whether the United States should change their long-term strategy in respect to Taiwan from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity that the United States will defend Taiwan, which was left ambigu ambiguous uh, for many years, and now supposedly is to become certain if a war breaks out. Now, obviously, the Taiwan Relation Act gave an encouragement for the renegade secessionist, and that unlike the United States, uh, who abandoned the Vietnam ally after 60,000 Americans had been killed uh, there, uh, China, in light of the history of the past 200 years, would never uh, give up, uh, is argued by Franz Gale. Now, Gale has been suspended in the meantime. He has uh, no longer security clearances, but he said it's uh, absolutely worth it because in his view, quote, we are running out of time as a country. Now, at a recent NATO summit on June 14th in Brussels, it was uh, made very clear that with the NATO 2030 agenda, there are plans to build a global NATO. They want to keep the open door policy uh, to have more partnerships with more, more countries turned into memberships so that Article 5 can be applied. On the target list of turning partners into potential members are Sweden, Finland, Georgia, Ukraine, despite a certain damper by President Biden to Zelensky, Bosnia-Herzegovina, countries in Africa and in the Indo-Pacific reinforce partnerships with the Quad, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, future partnerships with India. Now, naturally, always, this would be directed against Russia and China, which are characterized as a threat uh, and a challenge to the rules-based order. Slide number five, please. As the Brussels summit also <clears throat> uh, talked about uh, the NATO climate change and security action plan 2030, it is becoming clear and it was stated that NATO now becomes the leading international organization understanding and adapting to the impact of climate change on security. They want to be part of reducing the greenhouse gas emission from military activities, reach net zero emissions by 2050. Uh, you can take the slide away. <clears throat> uh, climate change consideration into NATO's full spectrum of work. NATO will is issue its first climate change and security progress report at the 2022 summit to track progress and reassess the level of ambition. Now, what is happening here? From the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to a global military power pushing the climate agenda, how does this fit together? Well, it is not so surprising if you look at the overlap between the military and the financial interest. We published recently a great reset report where we showed 
that Wall Street and the city of London are behind the climate agenda. And on the 25th of April, the German paper Welt am Sonntag had an extensive article and charts also showing the complete overlap of investment banks, hedge funds, green organizations, the World Wildlife Fund, Friday for Future, think tanks, etc. Now, this has to be com complemented with a complete overlap between the financial interests of the city of London and Wall Street with the military industrial complex, as President Eisenhower called it in his farewell speech to the nation in 1961. And this MIG, military industrial complex, which Ray McGovern, whom we hear uh, later, has called the Mickey Met, the military industrial congressional intelligence media academic think tank complex, uh, is a very useful book called Understanding the War Industry by Christian Sorensen, which documents the symbiotic relationship between the war industry and the financial, quote, industry. Very much worth reading, uh, just his remedy is mistaken because he thinks that the military industrial complex can be dismantled with the Green New Deal, and he completely overlooks that the Green New Deal is the policy of that complex. For example, the top five investors in Lockheed Martin are some of the top financial firms of Wall Street. <clears throat> the Street, State Street Corporation, Vanguard Group, BlackRock, which by the way manages $8 trillion of funds of investors, Capital World Investors, and Wellington Management Group. René Sigerson, in a recent book review of this Sørensen book, points out that it's these same five investors who own large parts of the shares of all four of the big five, four military production firms in the United States. Also, the mega firms of Silicon Valley are interwoven with the surveillance apparatus of the intelligence services whom seen, we have seen in action in Russiagate, the British-directed coup attempt against President Trump, uh, and all the anti-Russian, anti-China think tanks are in sync with this policy. For example, the Atlantic Council uh, published recently the report of an anonymous high government official with the title, The Longer Telegram, which openly calls for the toppling of President Xi Jinping. Part of this is the revolving door between Wall Street firms and Congress, between the Pentagon and the military industry, between the intelligence community and the media, etc., etc. For example, General Dynamics put former commander of the US Central Command, General James Mattis, on board of directors in 2013 for a very lucrative job. He made $1 million while in this position. Then he testified before Congress that reduced military spending was a threat to US national security. Then he became Secretary of Defense in 2017, continued the endless wars, oversaw weapon sales to European Mideastern countries, Australia and others, finished in January 2019 as Secretary of Defense 
and rejoined the board of General Dynamics in August. To make sure that the media is online, former CIA Chief Brennan is now at NSNBC and former Director of National Intelligence James Klepper now is working for CNN. Now recently, both Gorbachev and Putin compared the United States with the Soviet Union. That the United States uh, would be following a typical scenario of an empire, confident of their unlimited power, empires create unnecessary problems for themselves until they no longer can cope with them. And one of the contributing reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union, if we remember, was the neglect of investment in basic infrastructure and the civil part of the economy to the advantage of the military and security apparatus. Now, Mickey Matt has taken over a good portion of the US economy at the expense of infrastructure and is collapsing the real economy, schools, education. And what we see in the United States is a sort of primitive accumulation in the sense of Evgeny Preobrachensky discussed it for the Soviet Union in the 1920s, except that it is not so legim legitimate as Preobrachensky thought at the time. Now let's take a look what Eisenhower in 1961, please show the quote, uh, said in his farewell address. We have been compelled to create a permanent armament industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, and even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet, we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties of democracies, democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. So the urgent question is today, will this Mickey Met and its equivalent in Great Britain and NATO in general, which so far lives on the principle of the endless wars, because that is what fuels this machine, continue and expand 
globalize and very soon end up in a confrontation that would be the end of civilization. Even if people may think what I'm going to say now is utopian, there is an absolutely feasible alternative approach. It is in principle, if not in detail, what Lyndon LaRouche proposed in 2005 in order to save the US auto industry and what was published as the Economic Recovery Act of 2006, a comprehensive plan to retool large parts of industrial capacities of the United States. In the US, the United States and Europe uh, are suffering right now from a variety of problems which could be remedied. The US Society of Civil Engineers already several years ago said that there was a backlog of 4.5 trillion in infrastructure investment. One can easily double that figure or even say more because we have a severe collapse of overaged infrastructure, unsafe bridges, potholes in roads and highways, and so forth and so on. There is in the entire United States no fast train system. The United States has a ridiculous 30 kilometer uh, where the speed of trains goes up to 150 miles an hour, 30 kilometers as compared to 40,000 kilometers fast train system in China, which goes 350 kilometer per hour, and operating test runs for a maglev to go for 600 kilometers per hour. Please show the slide. What we need to do is a national task force should be assembled and they must pull together the most advanced machine tool design engineers and calculate what it requires to retool the better part of the military production capacities for the production of modern infrastructure, a national fast train system, nuclear plants, a new, si new science cities, and so forth and so on. Models uh, could be the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and its amendment, the Defense Plant Corporation Act of 1940, by which thousands of auto and other industrial plants were retooled at the time for the defense production. This time it could take the reverse direction for civilian production. The entire southwest of the United States is plagued since years by ever larger droughts, which could be remedied by water management programs such as Navapa 2021, which will deliver corridors of fresh water, be the framework for a new system of infrastructure, the production of nuclear fission plants, desalinization of ocean water, increase of agricultural production, and new science cities. Slide six, please. This, uh, this is a, a, a model of a sign, new science city for the United States, modeled on the beautiful Italian Renaissance proportion uh, to make the point that these new science cities can also be very beautiful. There are approximately, this is just a rough estimate, 6.1 million people employed today 
in the military industrial complex, not counting the other aspects of Mickey Mac, Mickey Met, um, you know, like the intelligence think tanks, uh, <clears throat> media, and so forth. Now, could a portion of these highly uh, qualified labor force be deployed in the economic reconstruction of the United States? Naturally, this has to be combined with LaRouche's four laws, a global class legal banking separation, a national bank in every country, a credit system in the form of Bretton Woods, the, the new Bretton Woods as it was intended by Franklin D. Roosevelt and not as it was implemented by Truman and Churchill, new economic platforms through international cooperation in fusion research, space research cooperation among all the spacefaring nations. Now, a change in thinking of that has to start with the agreement among leading nations of the world to collaborate in the construction of a world health system to fight the pandemic, namely a modern health system in every country. This will be the subject of our panels tomorrow. Now, LaRouche anticipated the reactions to his proposals. He said in a speech on March 27, 1998, there is an obvious objection to be expected from most critics. The customary objection will be that such a sudden and radical approach is politically impossible. Perhaps those critics are right. Perhaps it will prove impossible to find a significant number of governments willing to push through such radical measures in a short-term period. If those critics are right on that point, then the civilization will not live out the present century in its present form. If those critics are right, then the first generation of the coming century will be in a planet-wide dark, new dark age, a catastrophe like that which Europe experienced through the middle of the 14th century, but this time on a planet-wide scale. I would therefore respond to such critics with the following impassionate recommendation. Let those political leaders who lack the will to carry out the measures I have proposed get out of the way and pass the authority to act to those among us who are willing and able to enact these measures and do so suddenly. The immediate future of this civilization is it has to have an immediate future which lies in the hands of those who are willing to act with pungency and force along the lines I have indicated. That said, let us be optimists. Let us push the voices of those unless critics out of our minds, uh, useless critics out of our minds and concentrate on the actions which must be taken to avoid, to avert the catastrophe. Economic collapse, which now threatens to crush us in the near future. Now, unfortunately, LaRouche's warnings were not taken serious during his lifetime. Maybe it took to get to the brink of the nuclear apocalypse and the pandemic for people to realize that we have to listen to the wise words of Lyndon LaRouche as Lopez Portillo had noticed at the same time year of the LaRouche speech. Thank you. Thank you, Helga. If you've just joined us, 
We want to welcome you wherever you are in the world to the Schiller Institute online conference for the common good of all people, not rules benefiting the few. You're participating in panel one of that conference. And for those of you who will wish to ask questions and so forth, we will be uh, flashing on the screen placed by which you can communicate with us. Now to introduce our next speaker, we want to welcome Harley Schlanger, well known to the Schiller Institute audience for his daily updates, weekly webcast interviews with Helga Sepp-Labrouche and his writing and executive intelligence review magazine. He's going to also be doing co-moderating duties today. So welcome, Harley. Thank you, Dennis. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, who's Dr. Andrei Kortunov, who's a scholar and historian and the Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council. Uh, he was a recent participant in the Euro-Atlantic Leader Security Leadership Group, which issued a call for a reaffirmation of what was contained in the Reagan-Gorbachev communique from their summit in 1985, in which they stated, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. This statement was included in the Biden-Putin communique from June 15th. Dr. Kortinov? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Harley. Uh, dear Madame LaRouche, uh, dear friends uh, and colleagues, uh, it is definitely my pleasure to be a part of this discussion. I think uh, it is a very timely event, and I hope that uh, uh, it will be useful for all participants. I hope that it will be inspiring and uh, also intellectually gratifying. I was asked uh, to share some of uh, my uh, perceptions uh, of the recent uh, Biden-Putin summit in Geneva. And let me take a couple of minutes of your time uh, to discuss this issue. Uh, let me start with saying that uh, expectations in Moscow were pretty low. And uh, when uh, uh, Biden was elected, uh, uh, the overall mood uh, in Moscow, I assume in the Kremlin as well, was uh, pretty pessimistic uh, given the election campaign rhetoric uh, of President Biden and uh, his team. There were many doomsday uh, forecasts about how the relationship might evolve. Uh, many expected uh, that we will see much more robust sanctions against uh, Russia uh, and uh, a lot of negative rhetoric coming from the White House. Uh, and uh, these expectations were partially right. Uh, as you know, uh, President Biden, in one of his interviews, uh, even uh, entertained uh, the idea of President Putin as killer, uh, which, of course, uh, could not make him a lot of friends uh, in Moscow. But on the other hand, uh, in terms of uh, arms control, in terms of strategic stability, uh, I think he surprised uh, many analysts uh, in my country and not just in Russia, uh, because indeed, uh, one of the first decisions uh, by the new administration was uh, to extend the New START uh, agreement uh, with uh, no strings attached. So he did something that uh, President Trump unfortunately failed to do. And uh, though the previous administration considered uh, an extension of the New START agreement, but they were discussing a lot of modalities. 
about uh, this extension. So the first step was uh, clearly appreciated in Moscow. Uh, it followed by uh, uh, a round of sanctions against Russia, uh, but these sanctions were uh, mostly symbolic. Uh, the Biden administration uh, did not try to target uh, critical sectors of the Russian economy, such as the energy sector uh, or the Russian financial uh, system. Russia was not put uh, in the same league uh, with uh, Iran or North Korea. Uh, so uh, sanctions were, of course, an, an important irritant. And we also uh, observed uh, a continuous uh, diplomatic war between the two countries, but it turned out to be uh, better than uh, many had expected. Uh, so uh, the meeting uh, that uh, took part uh, uh, took place uh, in Geneva a couple of weeks, uh, weeks ago uh, was uh, a meeting uh, with uh, carefully managed expectations on both sides. I think that both sides realized that uh, they could not count uh, on uh, any reset or even a detente in their relationship, uh, not only because their positions on important international issues uh, uh, diverged, issues like uh, Ukraine or Syria uh, or Venezuela, uh, but uh, more importantly, their views on the fundamentals of the international system and on the future of the international system, uh, on the preferable world order to come, were also quite different, if not uh, uh, opposite to each other. Uh, so it was clear that there was no personal chemistry between the two leaders. Uh, nevertheless, uh, both of them were ready to take certain political risks to get together in Geneva, primarily uh, in order to make the relationship uh, more stable and more predictable. Uh, both uh, were, and I think are still, uh, interested uh, in reducing the costs uh, of this adversarial relationship and uh, uh, in cutting down uh, uh, the risks uh, associated uh, with this uh, uh, adversarial relationship. So that was the intention uh, of uh, Mr. Putin when uh, he got to Geneva. Was the summit successful? Uh, I would uh, grade it uh, as uh, B or maybe even B+. Uh, first of all, uh, because uh, the two sides agreed to continue the uh, uh, strategic arms control dialogue. And again, uh, I don't want to sound uh, too optimistic. It will be an uphill battle for both of them. Uh, the perceptions of uh, how we should move uh, further uh, from uh, the new START agreement uh, to uh, new reductions uh, of the nuclear arsenals of the two countries uh, are not the same. Uh, the Russian side uh, uh, tends uh, to focus primarily on strategic systems, both nuclear and non-nuclear, while the United States uh, prefers uh, to talk about uh, nuclear systems both strategic and non-strategic. So there is a different uh, approach uh, which uh, it will be not easy to reconcile. On top of that, of course, we have many pending uh, issues that were not properly addressed by the New START agreement. We have BMD systems that the United States uh, has deployed in Europe, in Poland, in Romania. We have tactical nukes uh, 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 that Russia has uh, also in Europe, uh, and the United States is trying to curb. 
we uh, have uh, uh, unfortunately uh, deconstructed uh, INF agreement. Uh, so in theory, we can uh, have a new arms race in Europe uh, involving uh, middle-ranged and shorter-ranged missiles. Uh, not to mention uh, new technological uh, developments uh, in the defense sector. And there are many new dimensions of the arms race, uh, like cyber and space and hypersonic and autonomous lethal systems and prompt strike and artificial intelligence. And uh, uh, the fact is that nobody really knows how to handle all this agenda. But now we got uh, a breathing space uh, and uh, we have uh, four and a half years uh, till uh, the new start agreement uh, expires. Uh, and hopefully uh, this uh, uh, time will be used uh, productively. Uh, and uh, by that time, we'll have a new concept of arms control. Again, you know, I would warn against uh, uh, being too optimistic. It was important that uh, both sides agreed that uh, you cannot really win a nuclear war, and therefore uh, the nuclear war should not and uh, must not be fought. Uh, but uh, the uh, movement towards a non-nuclear world uh, is likely to be slow and uh, quite precarious. Still, I think uh, it's a positive sign, and hopefully we will see more communications uh, between uh, the U.S. and Russian military and uh, civilian experts and diplomats, uh, and uh, maybe we will reach progress before too long. Uh, now let me turn to cyber. I think this is much more controversial and difficult issue than strategic arms control, because in arms control we have a common strategic culture that emerged gradually uh, since late 1960s, while uh, in cyber, we don't have such a culture. Uh, and uh, we have very different perceptions of how to approach a cyber warfare. And uh, for many, many years, <coughs> the Russian side insisted that we should uh, have a, a joint task force uh, to explore opportunities for cyber control. The United States, especially under the Trump administration, always rejected this idea. When Putin and Trump met for the first time in Hamburg uh, on the margins of the G20 summit, uh, President Trump uh, uh, seemed uh, to agree to have some kind of a joint uh, 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 task force with Russians on cyber. But when he got back to Washington, uh, he basically uh, uh, said that uh, uh, he, was not he was not ready uh, to embark on this road. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I think it's a positive sign that uh, we might have such a group, but we should keep in mind that the perceptions of cyber attacks are very different in Moscow uh, and in Washington, though both capitals are concerned about uh, uh, capacity of the other side to interfere uh, into their uh, domestic uh, uh, political uh, uh, system or into their uh, national economy uh, with the use of sophisticated cyber weapons. But how to limit the cyber warfare, how to resolve uh, the problem of attribution, uh, how to have a reliable red line uh, in cyber, uh, this is something that uh, is yet uh, to be discussed and hopefully agreed on. Uh, now let me tell, uh, turn to, to regional issues. And uh, uh, apparently in Geneva, they dis 
discussed a very broad set of regional issues. On some of them, I do not see any prospects uh, for uh, immediate uh, uh, joint actions or even coordination. I don't think that uh, in Geneva they were able to narrow the gap in perceptions on what's going on in and around Ukraine or in and around Belarus. Uh, but uh, I think on issues like Afghanistan, uh, probably uh, there is uh, more common ground. I think that uh, they could have uh, even agreed on some parallel uh, actions in Syria uh, related to the humanitarian situation in Idlib, for example, or uh, to potential negotiations uh, between uh, uh, between the Syrian Kurds uh, and the leadership in Damascus. I think that they could have probably discussed uh, uh, North Korea. Uh, maybe the Iranian portfolio assumed that the United States is still committed to getting back to GCPOA. Uh, uh, finally, let me uh, add that, uh, uh, of course, uh, there were some global commons uh, where Russia and the United States uh, more or less share their views and visions. Uh, let me refer to uh, the climate change, but also to uh, potential cooperation in the Arctic region. Uh, they could definitely uh, have agreed on something related to international terrorism uh, and uh, uh, potential cooperation uh, 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 in space. Uh, finally, uh, I think it's important that uh, now the two ambassadors are back to where they should be, uh, respectively in Moscow and in Washington, D.C. But uh, uh, this is not the end of story because, uh, of course, uh, it's great to have ambassadors back, but uh, you also need to bring us back. Uh, ambassadors are like generals. They need their armies. Uh, and uh, uh, if the diplomatic war uh, is not over, I'm afraid uh, neither John Sullivan uh, nor uh, Anatoly Antonov will have a lot to do uh, in their respective locations. I know that my time is running out. I don't want to take too much of it uh, from other speakers, but uh, let me just say that uh, uh, next couple of months uh, will tell us whether uh, a stabilization in the U.S.-Russian relations uh, is possible, uh, or we continue uh, this downward uh, uh, movement uh, to even uh, uh, greater risks and uncertainty of an unlimited uh, confrontation. I stay moderately optimistic that probably this relationship can be stabilized, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, I think that uh, we should keep in mind uh, that uh, uh, the relationship will continue to be very difficult uh, and uh, it uh, will be, in some cases, uh, confrontational. Uh, if we are thinking about a real change in the relationship, this change will not come uh, without new innovative ideas going beyond conventional wisdom. And uh, I do hope that uh, conferences like the one that we participate to today uh, might uh, make a contribution uh, uh, to go beyond conventional wisdom, uh, to think about uh, more creative, more unorthodox ways uh, to fix the U.S.-Russian relations, uh, but also uh, more general problems of uh, global uh, management that we all uh, have to approach today. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Dr. Kortunov. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Atul Aneha, the editor of indianarrative.com. His presentation, Engaging Russia and China as Part of a New World Order. What can India bring to the table? At the outset, I wish to thank the Shira Institute for inviting me to this exceptionally important conference. Over the next 10 minutes or so, I will be speaking on engaging Russia and China as part of a new world order. What can India bring to the table? We are living in difficult, turbulent, but nevertheless exciting times. COVID-19 pandemic is not yet over. But like other pandemics of the past, this one too will pass. But what would be the post-COVID world like? And what role would countries such as India, China, and Russia play in defining a new world order? More precisely, what specific role can India play with its engagement with Russia and China for defining a new world order? Ladies and gentlemen, let me begin by saying that even prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, the broad outlines of a new world order were quite tangibly visible before our eyes. With due apologies to Francis Fukuyama and his ilk, the era of the US-dominated unipolar world, starting arguably with the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, has already ended, visible with the sharp decline in US economic and military, and even soft power. Along with this is a relative rise of the emerged and the emerging economies, such as China, India, Russia, Brazil, and South Africa. Indeed, the unipolar world has been giving way to a multipolar world, with the center of gravity of both hard and soft power getting quickly diffused beyond the West though the European Union and the United States will continue to play the unique and influential role in a multipolar world. But what is also equally true is that the West will be unable to dominate the globe as had perhaps been done since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Along with the rise of the multipolar world is also the phenomena of the rise of civilizational states epitomized by China, Russia, India, and Iran, among others. What specific role can and should India play in the rapidly evolving multipolar world where China and Russia are the major poles? First and foremost, India itself, a civilizational state, needs to bond more deeply with both China and Russia. India and China, for instance, need to reconnect at a fundamental cultural and spiritual level. After all, Buddhism spread from India to China via the ancient Silk Road. Physically connecting the west coast of India with the far-flung Dunhua in China's Gansu province via the Xinjiang region. Traders, monks, and political figures traveled through the ancient Silk Road generating a unique cultural osmosis, evident from the magnificent grottos inside the Dunhuang Caves, similar to Ajanta art, and this was also visible across India. 
Indian, sorry, across China. Indian universities such as Nalanda invited Chinese scholars and monks to deepen their temporal and spiritual knowledge about Buddhism. Having traveled across several parts of India, Shunzang became the mascot of interpermeability of Indian and Chinese cultures. Umarajiva, the Indian monk, played a seminal role in translating Buddhist texts written in Sanskrit into Mandarin, while Malananda, the Indian monk, not only traveled into China, but played a seminal role in seeding Buddhism in South Korea and finally Japan. Conscious of their common spiritual heritage, both Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India and Chinese President Xi Jinping embarked on this journey of adding a civilizational layer to their contemporary engagements in the digital era. This happened through their meetings in Xi'an in 2015, in Wuhan in 2018, and most recently in Chennai. There has been, though, a temporary interruption in the relationship of the two countries over a border dispute, which is not disappearing anytime soon, I think. But sooner or later, the powerful historical currents of multipolarity and the thirst for a post-Western civilizational revival are likely to bring the two neighbors back on the path of cultural, economic, and political cooperation. With Russia, India's connection is also deep. Leo Tolstoy's deep impression on Gandhi had deeply influenced the path of nonviolence, which became the template of India's freedom struggle against British colonial rule. Indian business communities played their part in bringing the two nations together, evident from the presence of sarais or rest houses built by the Marwaris, an Indian business community, on the shores of the Caspian Sea in Astrakhan in Russia. During the Cold War, India and the Soviet Union had forged special ties, and this has translated itself in the post-Cold War era as well. On the back of its historical experience, India can help both China and Russia by making Eurasia rather than the so-called Indo-Pacific region as the primary focus of its international engagement. That means participating in new routes that are in the process of reconnecting Eurasia in the backdrop of the revival of the ancient Silk Road or the Eurasian land bridge as conceptualized by Ms. Helga Zepp Larouche and her late husband, Lyndon Larouche. How can India hook on to the Eurasian connectivity network? There are at least three spurs that can connect India with Eurasia. First, India can connect with China via the Bangladesh, China, India, Myanmar, or the BCIM corridor. This route can connect Kolkata in India with Kunming in China along a 2,500 kilometer corridor that passes through Bangladesh, Myanmar before ending in China. With Russia and Central Asia, India can thread its way from Mumbai port to the Iranian port of Chabahar on the Indian Ocean. From there, the Chabahar route goes northwards to Afghanistan and route Uzbekistan, 
Central Asia, and Russia. India, Iran, and Russia are also partnering in the International North-South Transport Corridor, or the INSTC. Once again, this land-come-sea route starts from Mumbai in India and threads its way to Bandar Abbas in Iran. A land corridor then takes a route forward from Bandar Anzali on the Iranian Caspian Sea coast to Astrakhan on the Russian side of the Caspian. Land routes then connect the INSTC to the Russian hinterland with branch line lines heading into Azerbaijan and Armenia in Caucasia. Earlier this year, India had proposed the integration of the Chabahar route and the INSTC route to form a giant pan-Eurasian integrated network with one spur also leading to the resource-rich Russian Far East. India is also negotiating with Russia to become a part of the Eurasian Economic Union or the EEU. Apart from accelerating transport and other form of linkages, India can step up the process of politico-economic integration with both China and Russia under the multilateral framework of the BRICS. With BRICS significantly institutionalized with the formation of the Shanghai headquarter BRICS Bank or the New Development Bank, India can take the next step by not only bonding with Russia and China, but also in other geographies, especially in Latin America and Africa, forging closer ties with two major regional heavyweights, Brazil in Latin America and South Africa in Africa. In advancing on the BRICS path, it may be possible to foster a BRICS world order where the emerging economies of the world also come on the high table of global governance. Within the BRICS format and outside, India can play a major role in developing a new global healthcare order which serves the entire humanity and not just the global elite. What can India do in the healthcare sector that will benefit the world? Before the second wave of COVID-19 hit India, India as the largest producer of vaccines on the planet was well on its way to providing inexpensive jabs, especially to countries in the global south. Under the slogan of vaccine Maitri, or vaccine friendship, India was on its way to exporting vaccines to developing countries, including in South Asia and Africa. Though interrupt, interrupted, this process can and has to restart. Though major international, through major international investments flowing into India in the vaccine sector, given its vast pool of human resources, India can become the global vaccination hub of producing large quantities of inexpensive vaccines to be supplied to the globe. With a patchy healthcare infrastructure, India can also become the base for demonstrating the concept of holistic health, which also covers the educational and nutritional fields. With China as partner, India and China can also work together in leveraging India's Ayurveda health system, which is an ancient health system, and the Chinese medicine system. Yoga of India and Tai Chi of China can also come together to highlight the moral and spiritual dimensions of holistic health. By deepening ties with China and Russia, 
Indian can play, India can play a major role in developing a mature, integrated, and cooperative multipolar world system covering the political, economic, and cultural dimensions of a new world order. I will stop here and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Master Aneha. Our next speaker is retired retire Colonel Richard Black, United States, former state senator from Virginia and former head of the United States Army's Criminal Law Division at the Pentagon. His topic is U.S.-China Relations, a Pathway for War Avoidance and Cooperation. Well, I'm Senator Dick Black. Um, let me just say, to begin with, I have a, a military background. I fought in heavy ground combat with the 1st Marine Division, and uh, I was wounded. Both of my radio men were killed beside me. I also flew in combat to 269 helicopter missions, and my helicopter was hit by ground fire on four occasions uh, and had to crash land in one case. Um, so I, I just mentioned that by way of saying that I, I'm a patriot, I've shed a bucket of blood for this country. And uh, so I come at this uh, from a, a very conservative viewpoint, but one that uh, I think is well-informed. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about, uh, about our relations with China. And uh, I'd like to start with, uh, with our, uh, our involvement with Taiwan, first of all. Uh, let me say that I, I am concerned uh, by the growing Sino-American tension. Um, and I, I certainly disagree with those who feel that the United States must exercise hegemony in Asia. Uh, and I hope that uh, we can diminish the tensions. Let me, let me start by reviewing the situation with, with Taiwan. Uh, if you look at things in terms of the historical development over the past 50 years, uh, the relations between China and Taiwan are internal affairs of the nation of China. Um, and just as uh, we would expect that China would refrain from interference in American foreign policy, or, or rather domestic policy, uh, we should also uh, refrain from uh, over-involvement in China's domestic affairs. Uh, going back a little bit, uh, President Nixon made a visit to China in 1971. It's perhaps the most consequential uh, diplomatic visit ever made by an American president. As a result of it, the United States and China benefited enormously from improved trade and national security. Um, these historic developments were founded on the Shanghai Communique, which remains the basis for bilateral relations today. President Nixon and Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai uh, found it necessary to resolve the Taiwan issue. There certainly were significant divisions in the, in the views of the two nations, but they bridged those differences by recognizing a one China, two systems policy. And uh, 
as a practical result of their agreement, uh, we have had peace and harmony between our nations for uh, half a century since. Um, as long as the United States has approached the Taiwan issue with sensitivity and respect, uh, the interests of both parties have flourished and peace has been maintained across the uh, Straits of, uh, of Taiwan. In 1971, something very significant was done. Uh, there are five members of the, uh, of the UN Security Council who have a veto power. These are the very five powerful nations, one of them being China. And uh, the United Nations General Assembly enacted Resolution 2758 with the tacit approval of the United States, and it transferred the control of that, uh, that very powerful seat from the uh, Republic of Korea, Chiang Kai-shek's old government, to the uh, PRC, People's Republic of China. And as a result, uh, the government in Beijing was recognized by the United Nations as the legitimate government of China. All of the diplomatic relations uh, shifted over from the, the bulk of nations. And, uh, and Taiwan had this situation where they were viewed a little bit like uh, Hong Kong was uh, previously. Um, Taiwan did remain uh, strong and independent, but in 1979, the U.S. Uh, formally recognized the uh, PRC, People's Republic of China, as the sole legitimate uh, government of China. And so it's rather strange to see us today uh, talking as though perhaps they're not the sole legitimate government of China. Um, we, we went through this period where, where we had this explosive growth of trade between the two nations. Uh, it was very beneficial in many ways to us. In some ways, it had some downsides. But uh, in any event, uh, the tremendous trade eventually uh, caused some trade tensions, uh, inevitably. And President Trump uh, raised some very legitimate issues with the Chinese about their infringement on intellectual property, our patents, our copyrights. Um, I think he was very justified in doing that. He was also very justified in, in uh, highlighting the, uh, the lopsided balance of trade. And, uh, and negotiations were undertaken to resolve these issues. Unfortunately, it was a presidential year when all of this was taking place. And uh, before long, you had Republicans and Democrats both accusing one another of being soft on China. And uh, eventually their rhetoric uh, just degenerated into a shrill cacophony of, of hostile, unreasoning voices. Uh, there were exaggerated claims about Chinese military intentions towards Taiwan. And those were responded to by provocative uh, naval exercises by the United States. And in turn, China has, uh, has made somewhat provocative uh, 
overflights of, of aircraft in the in the waters off of uh, off of Taiwan. Neither of those was necessary. Uh, they they simply were a stick in the eye to to one another. Um, <clears throat> I think the growing Sino-American tensions have benefited no one. And I believe that uh, U.S. leaders would be wise to rekindle President Nixon's most enduring legacy, uh, which was the normalization of relations between the two countries. Now, let me shift just a minute. I want to talk about the uh, about China's dealing with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Xinjiang province is, is a huge uh, northwestern region of China. It's very arid. It's sparsely populated. Uh, there's a considerable amount of poverty there just because of the situation. Um, and uh, again, it's important to understand the context of these things when you hear, well, these, the poor Uyghurs are being set upon. Uh, in 2014, uh, there were knife-wielding terrorists who seized the uh, Kunming uh, train station, and they attacked the Han Chinese uh, in, a, in a very famous attack. Over 180, 170 people were killed or wounded in a, by, by knife-slashing terrorists. These were Uyghur separatists. Uh, they were carrying a hand-painted uh, hand East Turkestan flag, and uh, they just slaughtered dozens and dozens of people who were totally helpless. This was not the first such attack. There had been dozens of similar terrorist attacks carried out across uh, Xinjiang province. Uh, the, the militant Uyghurs intend to form a radical Islamic state using Wahhabi fundamentalist uh, ideas imported from Saudi Arabia and countries like that. And they want this kind of seventh century, um, uh, very, very brutal type of, of governance to take place. And they want to exclude all of the Han Chinese uh, who presently live in uh, Xinjiang province. Um, so the, the Chinese government was really compelled to, re, to react. The, the China's approach to, uh, to the Uyghur situation is, is complex and it's multifaceted. Uh, they're taking steps to alleviate the historic poverty in this vast area. And they have a very comprehensive, extremely well-funded uh, economic program. And the idea is to eliminate the root causes of the jihadist radicalization. Uh, they have vocational job training, uh, increased literacy, uh, uh, job placement, uh, modernization of agriculture, which is very important there and construction of modern housing uh, for the people. Um, so we need to put it in perspective and recognize that there is no higher obligation of a nation than to protect its citizens from serious violence. 
And just as the United States, when we when we uh, declared the reasons for for our breakaway from uh, and for for establishing a new government, we said that one of the four reasons for establishing the government was to ensure domestic tranquility. And the Chinese have that obligation to their people no less than we do. Um, the Western prov pro propaganda about genocide, I believe is unfair, inaccurate, and irresponsible. Now, <clears throat> I think it's, it's, it's important to understand today what is happening uh, in Xinjiang province the Turkish government is facilitating the movement of Uyghur militants from China through Turkey into Idlib province of Syria. And the, uh, the, uh, there is a 4,000 man brigade of ultra militant Uyghurs who are uh, fighting against the legitimate government of Syria. Uh, they have, uh, they're a part of the Al-Qaeda forces and they serve under uh, Abu Mohammed Al-Julani. Uh, they operate out of Al-Shugar, a very key uh, point, uh, defensive point there. And uh, uh, they are a part of the the most bloodthirsty terrorists on earth, men who were made famous for beheadings, mass rapes, crucifixions, and slavery. And this is the, the mentality that they carry with them as they filter back and forth uh, between China and between Syria. So it's very dangerous for them. And I think it's, it's unfortunate the CIA has uh, supported the terrorists in Idlib province, Syria, uh, with just unwavering support. And uh, we routinely employ terrorists in various hotspots around the world, uh, utterly disregarding the very profound collateral risk that this poses both to the United States and to uh, Europe. Um, there's there's been discussion of uh, China's suppression of extremism as genocide, and it, it's nothing of the sort. I think it makes a mockery of the very term genocide. Um, uh, the uh, e even the State Department, uh, the Office of Legal Advisor, have said that uh, there is not evidence to support the notion of genocide with the Uyghurs. So that's, that's coming from the US State Department. Um, uh, I think the world is besieged by dangerous jihadists and nations should be cooperating to suppress them and refrain from making them pawns in a dangerous uh, game between the countries. Um, I just like to uh, uh, touch on, on one other thing as, as I begin to close. Um, the U.S. and China really should begin to work together uh, to try to resolve some of the some of the uh, points of friction within the world, and I think Syria would be a good place to start. Uh, 
Syria has been war torn for the past 10 years. Uh, the people on both sides, of course, 90% of the country is, is under the Syrian government, but the other 10% is controlled by the terrorists. And, uh, but on both sides, there's a great weariness with the war. And the only thing that really keeps the war going is that we have such uh, an effective naval blockade on Syria. And also we have these Caesar sanctions, which are quite brutal, quite, uh, you know, they cause famine uh, in, in many instances. And uh, if we would simply drop the blockade, drop the sanctions, we could begin rebuilding. And it, once we rebuild, it, the, the young men of, of Syria have no interest in being soldiers, but they don't have any other option. If you're going to feed your family, you got to be a soldier on one side or the other. And it's time really that uh, they, uh, they begin to uh, pound their rifles into plowshares and, and rebuild the country. Now, it's particularly important that China do everything conceivable to help to rebuild Syria. Because remember, there are those five, or rather those 4,000 uh, Uyghur extremists in Al-Shagar. If by some means uh, the terrorists of Al-Qaeda were able to overthrow the nation of Syria, uh, this would vastly empower the Uyghur militants, and they would simply explode back into Xinjiang province, and uh, uh, they would spread the revolution there with enormous quantities of weapons funneled in and so forth. And it really would be an existential threat to the existence of China. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency and MI6 are keenly aware of this. Uh, we, we used Operation Cyclone against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, and we fielded a 300,000 man army of terrorists uh, who were trained by Saudi uh, clerics uh, in Wahhabi philosophy, trained to kill Christians and other non-Muslims. Um, there are some within the CIA, I'm quite certain, who look at Xinjiang province and they see an operation for a new, uh, or an opportunity for a new Operation Cyclone, which is what we called the operation that drove the Soviets from Afghanistan. Um, I think this would have uh, terrible uh, implications for the entire world. It would destabilize all of the world if we were to start this up in China. And so I hope that the United States will take a more reasoned approach towards China. At the same time, I am concerned that some of the old uh, Chinese diplomats are now leaving the scene and being replaced by more aggressive diplomats. Uh, I think what we need is, is diplomats who will look for common ground and who will diminish the level of tension so that, uh, so that we can live in peace. We need to always remember that uh, if we end up in combat with China, 
either we fight a land war in Asia, and we know the results of that, or we engage in a nuclear war. Those are the two options. A nuclear war means the destruction of much of mankind. And so my hope is that we resolve things diplomatically and that cooler heads will prevail. So thank you very much. And I appreciate being with you today. Thank you, Colonel Black. Later during the question and answer session, we will return to this discussion of the Syrian Caesar sanctions with a short report from journalist Dan Kovalik, who just returned from Syria. We're now going to hear Ray McGovern, United States, former analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency and co-founder of Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. His topic, when one step back is also one step forward, the coincidence of opposites. Let me recall um, five years ago now, uh, a small delegation of which I was a part was in Crimea. Uh, it was the commemoration of when the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union. And we know what that brought. That brought 27, well, Putin says 26, he doesn't exaggerate, 26 million, 26 million Russian or Soviet people dead, okay? Now, by comparison, how many Americans were dead after World War II? How many were killed? Over a little bit over 400,000. Do the math. Do the math. So here it was, the anniversary of the Nazi attack. We were a small delegation. There was a rather sizable um, gathering uh, in, in um, Crimea, where we were. And uh, they, uh, they asked me to speak. <clears throat> and so the best thing I could think <clears throat> was to recite an appropriate poem that I had memorized way back in college, uh, a poem by the Russian poet called um, The Poet of Russian Grief, Ruskoy uh, Skorby, okay? His name is Nikrasov, and it's called Vinimaya Ujasum Baini, Paying Attention to the Horrors of War. This is how it goes. I'll give a short translation after a few stanzas. Внимая ужасом войны, при каждой новой жертвой боя, мне жаль не друга, не жены, мне жаль не самого героя. Увы, утешится жена, и друга лучший друг забудет. Okay, so paying attention to the harvest of war. At every new victim of the war, I don't feel real sorry for the hero himself uh, or his mother or his 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 best friend uh, you know i uh, i can't feel sorry for those folks because there's something bigger at large here okay so best friends forget their best friends друга лучше друг забудет на где-то где-то есть but somewhere there is one soul who will remember right till the grave. 
при лицемеренящих сделал и всякой плошестой прозой одни из меня в мире подсмотрел святые искренние слезы okay. при умерли прозаичных и мне забыть своих детей, погибших на кровавом небе. The sincere tears of poor mothers, they do not forget their children who perish on the bloody battlefield. И мне забыть своих детей, погибших на кровавом небе, как нет, не поднят, не поднят плохую своих поникнувших детей. Just as a weeping willow tree can never lift its branches. So, uh, poignant, yes. Relevant, yes. There were that day in in uh, Crimea, uh, Yalta is where we were. There were mothers there. There were children of mothers. Uh, there were relatives of people who died during World War II. Again, just a, a drop in the bucket of the 26 million Soviet citizens that, that perished in that war. So why do, why do I say all this? I'm saying this because, you know, when you look at the horrors of war, my God, you would have to say you'd be crazy. You'd be crazy to start one. Uh, and, you know, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Uh, Those whom the gods would destroy and make them crazy first, right? Uh, make them full of hubris. You know, the original expression did not come from Euripides, like they say in, in some of the books. It came from Sophocles, from Sophocles' Antigone. And I have to tell you that, uh, <laughs> that in my fourth year of Greek, uh, we translated the Antigone verbatim. It has to do with hubris. Not only King Creon's, but Antigone's hubris. Hubris being overweening pride, which led to the downfall of many a Greek tragic hero. That's what we're dealing with here. And uh, I think that Biden, uh, as he came to Geneva to do the summit with Putin, I think he was uh, artificially inflated with hubris. I think that Biden was sort of pumped up to think that, whoa, now I can, I can tell these, these, these Russians uh, who, who they have to listen to, and it ain't the Chinese, it's us. Last thing I'll say on this is that it's really very important to look at the origins of the summit to understand what really started it. And if you look back uh, just before it was announced, the date was announced, uh, we're talking April 13th. And four very important things happened that day. Four, count them, one, two, three, four. First one, head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. Oh my God, the Russians are massing troops in unprecedented numbers on the Ukraine border. Second thing that happened is uh, Russian defense minister, Uh, said, um, you got that right, Stoltenberg, you got that absolutely right. Would you believe two armies and 
three airborne formations. Third thing that happened is the deputy foreign minister, a heavyweight named Ryabkov, Sergei Ryabkov, second only to Lavrov, okay? He makes this statement saying, look, you, you all are intending, you Americans are intending to enter the Black Sea with two guided missile destroyers. Not a good idea. We can't guarantee their safety. Not a good idea at all. Parenthetically, those ships were turned around toward Greece. Okay. Fourth and most important, Biden calls Putin. He says, my God, I hope things are, are simmering down now. We, we've tried to get Zelensky to stop making these crazy statements like taking back uh, Crimea. Uh, how, would you, how would you like to have a summit? And Putin says, uh, well, you know, we always like to meet face to face. And then that was the 13th, uh, 25th, I think, was announced that they would meet really quickly uh, three weeks later in Geneva. So what accounts for this very ill-prepared uh, quick summit? Well, uh, as one of my subheads in one of my articles said, uh, you asked for it, Joe. You asked for it. And he did ask for it. And he was scared. And uh, I just can see one of these wet behind the ears young sophomores saying, uh, Mr. President, like Jake Sullivan, let's say, you know, this is serious. Huh? We better, you know, you know, how about, yeah, how about a summit? Why don't you propose a summit? So in these very odd, tense circumstances, Biden proposed a summit. Now, on the way, of course, <laughs> they tried to brief Biden on the realities. My very first piece on the summit had to do with the changed correlation of forces. Look, you have a virtual military alliance between Russia and China. This is a big deal. Don't, don't take any idea that you can exploit the triangular relationship between Russia, China, and the U.S. Uh, that's, that's, the, the barn door is closed on that. That happened back in the 70s. They're very much together. Matter of fact, uh, the, the triangle may be equilateral still, but it's two sides against one. And you're the, the odd man out, Mr. President. I'm not sure these sophomores had enough sense of history to warn the president about that. But if they did, he got it completely wrong. He has a tin ear. In other words, what he said, what he said in his solo press briefing after the summit was, you know, I don't want to quote uh, Putin because that would be, that would be not appropriate. But uh, let's say uh, you have a, a multi-thousand mile border with a country named China that's not only trying to be the major econ economic power in the world, but the major military power in the world. And then plain side, before he deported, he said, you know, the, the Russians are very, very, very much in a tight spot. You know why? Because they're being squeezed by China. <laughs> Does he believe that? He's maybe somebody told him about what Kissinger and Nixon were able to do in 1972, and he thought, "Well, I can do that again." If you don't, if you don't understand what the old Soviets used to call the world uh, correlation of forces and how they change 
in terms of uh, the years since, and we're talking five decades, these guys that come out of the same Ivy League schools that Waltz Rostow, McGeorge Bundy, the best and the brightest on Vietnam came out of, they believe they're exceptional. They're told that from their, their first special school. They believe that the U.S. is exceptional. And uh, so kind of, it's hard to get a kind of a, what's the word, a turnaround of the mind uh, to get real in this new world where the U.S. is not only not exceptional anymore, not only able to take advantage of other great powers, but doesn't seem to realize that. So we get again to the, the question of hubris, the old Greek tragic flaw, which did in Antigone as well as King Creon, and which uh, you know, we have to be careful that it doesn't do us all in. And uh, that, I think, is what Biden uh, and Putin need to cooperate on. The good news, of course, is that they are going to start a dialogue on strategic armaments, hopefully to reduce them. Uh, but even there, uh, the rhetoric probably is more important uh, than the action because the rhetoric does disavow this notion that a, a nuclear war can be fought and that a nuclear war can be won. Now, I say that's rhetoric. It's significant rhetoric because it goes back to Reagan and Gorbachev. But uh, what would give me more hope is that Biden goes to Omaha and cashiers that admiral heads, who heads up the equivalent of SAC, Strategic Air Command, who has said, you know, uh, using nukes is not only possible, it's a problem. Yeah, we, yeah it's all sure, well, sure we could use nukes. So unless Biden cashiers that guy, or at least reigns him in and says, don't say that anymore, um, the rhetoric will not be as strong as I would prefer it to be. I've run on longer than I thought, uh, but I'm happy to entertain any questions or any, uh, any remarks that uh, you'd like me to reply to. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. McGovern. And we will be going now to questions and answers. Let me simply say that we did have another presentation by Mr. Malik Ayub Sumbal, um, which was called A Divided World Amid COVID and Future Pandemic Risks and Challenges. We're having some technical problems with it. We're trying to make sure that he joins us now for the beginning of our questions and answers. And what we're going to do is bring up online all of the participants that are able to be with us at the moment. And so uh, that includes Mrs. Helga Zeplarouche, uh, Dr. Kortunov, who's there, I see, uh, Atul Aneha, uh, Harley's there. Uh, and I'm hoping Ray McGovern is going to join us, but he's not there at the moment. And again, as I say, we hope to get uh, Mr. Sumbal. Ah, Ray is there. Very good. All right. So, so I want to first of all ask Helga uh, if you have any reflections or particular uh, questions for any of the participants that are here. Well, let me first express my um happiness with the discussion um, naturally i i'm very happy to see uh, my old friend atul anea who i thought was uh, contributing a very important angle namely india which after all you know is one of the 
two largest civilizational uh, countries, uh, also 1.3 billion people. And I think him speaking about the cultural tradition you know, brings in a dimension which I think is very important in this uh, dialogue of um, you know, how to get the world out of the present mess. Naturally, I was very happy also about uh, Amy McGovern reciting poetry, which always is, is very uh, good and uplifting. And uh, I'm very <clears throat> interesting, interested also in the insightful remarks of uh, Mr. Kortunov. Um, <clears throat> however, I would like to you know, reiterate what I said at the, at the end of my remarks, because I do believe that you know, we need to put some new elements on the agenda. Um, the pandemic is the obvious one because you know, if I think it's a test of morality, if we cannot, I mean, if we don't do anything, you know, significant interest, vaccines are very important, but I think we need to take this crisis as the beginning to seriously overcome the underdevelopment of the developing countries. And it has been the policy of uh, my late husband and Schiller Institute you know, for decades that the new name for peace is development. So I just would like to bring that back in the, in the memory of the discussion. Okay, so uh, let me simply ask uh, Dr. Kortunov, uh, if there's anything you'd like to say, question, or uh, respond to. Well, uh, let me echo what uh, Madame LaRouche has just said. I think that uh, the time has come for all of us uh, to think creatively uh, about uh, a new cycle of globalization which lies in front of us. And uh, hopefully it will be different from what we experienced uh, in the beginning of this century. And uh, I think that uh, definitely some of the notions that were used uh, 20 years ago and are still used by many people uh, tend to be uh, antiquated and archaic. I think that there is no longer the global center and the global theory. I think that we will have to live in a world without a benign hegemonic power. Uh, we will have to live in the world where social justice might turn out to be more important than individual freedoms and so on and so forth. I don't want to start another presentation but I think that we should all keep in mind uh, that uh, the current cycle in the global politics, uh, the cycle of deglobalization, protectionism, uh, nationalism, arms race, and the uh, multiple regional conflicts uh, is not something that will last forever. So we have to leave through this uh, dead zone, but we should think creatively about how to manage uh, the new cycle of interconnectedness and interdependence. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Aneha. Uh, well, uh, I would like to make a brief point. You see, when you talk about the concept of multipolarity, of a multiple world, it is being visualized as an anti-Western world. And I think that's a wrong conception. Uh, the point really is that how do you interconnect the various civilizational states uh, in a harmonious manner, and which comes in the domain of culture, which come, which include uh, economic integration, new transport routes, uh, and uh, 
I think there's another problem here, which is that what is really the ideology of a multipolar world? What are the principles which bind us all together? That's, that needs to be a work in progress. And I think intellectuals across the world need to look at this dimension as well. The ideological dimension, where there is no one hegemonic power which is sort of pulling the others. It is truly multipolar. And how do we connect beyond the economic and cultural frame? And what should be the new ideology for a multipolar world, and which is harmonious world, which is not to be seen as a, as as opposed or other any other civilization? I think uh, there was this. Uh, concept of the world land bridge, if I remember right, which was done by the uh, Larish Institute, which was essentially connecting the Americas with Siberia with the with the undersea uh, route uh, tunnel uh, beneath the Bering Bering Strait, if I remember right, which would it physically integrate the Americas uh, with 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 Eurasia. So that's the physical part which we need to undertake. But then there are other dimensions which we need to ideate about. Thank you. Okay. And Ray? I had a couple of things. Um, I'm more current intelligence oriented. I worry greatly about missteps with respect to Taiwan. <clears throat> and again, I refer <clears throat> back to the advisors that Biden has who are wet behind the ears. That means they're sophomores, at best rising juniors, as we say about high schoolers. Uh, after the summit, um, the Chinese uh, in their Global Times newspaper, which most people believe is controlled by the government, uh, they warned uh, that if there were trouble in the Taiwan Straits, Russia and China would act together militarily. Whoa. Now, the conventional wisdom, of course, is, well, they don't have a military, well, they don't have a military alliance. Well, they don't need one. Gorbachev and Gorbachev. Putin and Xi have made that quite clear. They're so close now, they don't need an alliance, okay? Now, I've looked at the Russian press very closely uh, in hopes of finding whether or not the Russians have repeated that Global Times assertion, namely the assumption that Russia would be in on this war against the US. They have not mentioned it. That's one reason there is no formal military alliance. But once they do mention it, then that would signify to me that they approve this kind of uh, thought that were there trouble in the Taiwan Straits or in the South China Sea, that they would have to contend with Russia in the West as well as uh, Chinese in the East. I've been saying that for a year now, uh, mostly laughed at, but uh, this is the new, the old Soviet term, correlation of forces. Now, the other thing is that uh, Biden actually told Putin, I know this from Biden's words in the press conference, the solo press conference after the summit, he said, Mr. Putin, don't you realize you have a multi-thousand mile border with China? And they're out to be not only the supreme economic power, but the supreme military, don't you? <laughs> we, we know about that, you know? Plain side, 
he said, and I'll repeat myself, you know, uh, Russia's in a real tight bind uh, because China is squeezing them, squeezing them. Now, maybe he believes that. Maybe he's been briefed on that. What's Mr. Putin going to do in such circumstances? He's going to say, wow, this guy doesn't get it. Uh, he might try something thinking that China and, and Russia are, are very much apart. And the worst thing, and I'll end with this, is that Mr. Biden, Mr. Sullivan, Mr. Blinken, the others, all except our defense secretary, have zero, zero experience with war. They don't know what war is. I gave you the figures, 26 million World War II dead right, for the Soviet Union, 400,000 soldiers lost a little bit more in the U.S. Uh, these people uh, are so hubris-filled and so unknowledgeable about war. How many draft deferments did Dick Cheney have? Everyone knows that, right? How many? Five. Count them. One, two, three, four, five. How many draft deferments did President Biden have? Would you believe one, two, three, four, five? Also five. Sullivan, Blinken, they never put a uniform on. So they don't know. They don't know about the Ujusumvaini. They don't know about the horrors of war. This is worrying because Putin does know. He lost his big brother in the siege of Leningrad. He learned from his mother and father what that was like. 900 days, people died of hunger. Go to Lenin, go to St. Petersburg and see that monstrous cemetery. So there's a whole different, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, a whole different approach to war that would worry me as if I were Putin. That would also worry uh, me if I were Z. And that has to be taken into account because things are very volatile now, the more so since exercises in Europe, Defender on our side, and Zapad, meaning West on the Soviet, on the Russian side, are just about to break out in full this spring. So uh, thanks for letting me go on this long, but those are extra thoughts that really worry me. And if the balloon goes up uh, against uh, Taiwan, uh, it's gonna be very, very difficult to, to avoid nuclear war, as Daniel Ellsberg has so eloquently proved, if you go back to 58, it was planned, a nuclear war. What now? Well, we have admirals saying, well, yeah, we, 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 possible. It, it's no, no longer not possible. Now, Biden has said now it's not a good idea. Let's see if he can rein in the rest of the Mickey Matt. Thanks. Sure. Would anyone like to respond to uh, anything anyone has said? If not, what we'll do is we'll begin uh, questions. At first, Harley, I'll ask if you've got any questions. I've got one thing that um, I'll go to uh, if you uh, don't. No, I do have a couple of questions. And obviously this question of the multilateralism or multipolar world is on a lot of people's minds now following the summit. Uh, there's a question for Dr. Kortunov, and also uh, they asked if Helga could respond from a blogger uh, who said in, in your speech, Dr. Kortunov, you mentioned we need a new creative approach to address some of the outstanding differences. I think Helga, you said the same thing. 
So he asked, what can you suggest can be done to convince those who are committed to a unipolar world order in which the U.S. and NATO make the, the rules to instead accept that world peace requires multilateral cooperation based on mutual regard for the other, which seems to be lacking, especially from the side of the U.S. and NATO. So that's for Dr. Kortunov and also Helga, if you have a comment on that. Uh, it's, it's a big question, of course. Uh, I think that uh, there is a certain, certain learning curve that we observe in the United States. There are attempts to adjust the country and the people of this great nation uh, to a new environment. Uh, it is slow. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, sometimes Americans have to learn it hard way. Uh, one of the lessons uh, that I hope the United States public will learn is the bitter experience of Afghanistan. Uh, what we see is a, a clear defeat of the military operation that lasted for 20 years. And uh, uh, I think it's not accidental uh, that uh, the U.S. public is very reluctant to any idea of uh, any significant U.S. military engagement. I think it's good news to all of us, uh, and I hope that this trend uh, will continue. I would also like to say that uh, I think it was uh, uh, Socrates who once said that uh, uh, in order to do something, uh, you should focus not uh, on uh, fighting against the old, but uh, you should focus on uh, creating something new. And uh, I, I guess that this is a task of uh, intellectuals, uh, think tanks, uh, opinion makers, uh, because uh, uh, the political establishments are likely to be conservative uh, and resistant to new ideas. So it really depends on uh, societies, civil societies, uh, capable of generating new ideas and presenting these new ideas uh, in a compelling uh, form uh, that would uh, allow to gain more uh, audiences uh, uh, and uh, more receptive uh, listeners uh, in various parts of the world. I don't see that there is any other way. Helga? Well, I think, you know, um, when you are in a, in a seeming contradiction uh, at this point, let's say, between the United States on the one side or the West on the one side and Russia and China on the other side. And if you look at it in the <clears throat> Aristotelian way, then A is not B and you can never bridge this conflict. But, you know, I think you have to approach it epistemologically, um, you know, from the standpoint of the controversy between Plato and Aristotle, but especially the new kind of thinking which Nikolaus of Kusa or Kusansky has introduced, which is this coincidence of opposites, namely that you have to develop a higher level of reason uh, where you can find solutions where the conflict which arose on the lower level does not exist. And you know, given the fact that you know, maybe the hardest believers in unipolar world cannot see it yet, but the rest of the world, if even Mrs. Merkel, Chancellor Merkel, is now in favor of a multilateral world, does not want to be drawn into either side of the US or China, for example. You know, there is a, a clear change. 
And I think the voice of the developing countries, the voice of other civilizational states, which bring in 5,000 years of history, which bring in, I mean, the majority of people are in the developing sector. And if they all are brought in much more consciously, I think this higher level of reason can be, you know, that the pandemic has shown to us that we need a world health system because you know it, it's so obvious that, that it's almost amazing that you have to discuss it because if every country would have had the same methods and means of Wuhan uh, in China, this pandemic would never have become a pandemic. And I really think that that is from everything I can see and I've thought about it quite a bit. I think this question of a national health system, a modern health system in every single country, and that being the beginning of overcoming the underdevelopment for good, I think that that is the one flank where you can rally the majority of the world population around. And maybe that will then also be the beginning for people in the United States to see that the reconstruction of the United States uh, would be so much more in the US interest than to engage in, in another war to lose uh, like you know Vietnam or like uh, Afghanistan or you know all these endless wars. So I think if we join forces to say, you know this is the moment for a really new beginning with the world health system and really overcoming the poverty of the developing countries. And if that becomes a chorus of voices, and this is being discussed in many conferences, in many meetings, in you know, it, it can become a steamroller. That that is my hope. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I have a question which is for Dr. Kortunov, um, which is the following. And actually, it may be another comment that someone will also want to make. Mr. Lyndon LaRouche said that the current human species, if it is to develop, must no longer be earthlings but take its proper role as a universal species, devoting its development and research and development to what we call space and aiming to develop human civilization. Now, however, if it is true that nuclear war cannot be won and must not be fought, it is even more importantly true and far more frightening than me regarding space war. Yet the US military industrial complex especially is devoted to militarizing space all the more. So with the formation of the space force, I cannot see that a humanity in the universe can exist as long as there is any kind of militarization of space. Can you comment? Uh, well, let me say that I fully agree with this uh, our, our comment. Uh, indeed, uh, militarization of space represents one of the most uh, destabilizing and one of the most uh, expensive avenues of uh, arms race in the 21st century. Uh, let me tell you, uh, just in practical terms, that about a year ago, uh, Russia and uh, the United States uh, had uh, uh, the first consultations in Vienna uh, on uh, how we can avoid uh, militarization of the outer space. And uh, these were the first consultations after a very, very long pause. Uh, although uh, the sides uh, did not agree on too many issues, uh, it was important that the United States finally decided uh, to uh, go into these consultations with the Russians. Uh, definitely we need other space powers uh, to be engaged in this conversation. 
And I think that uh, uh, the outer space represents uh, a challenge, but also an opportunity because it is uh, really the last frontier. And indeed, uh, if we are thinking about the human species uh, becoming uh, universal, uh, going beyond our home planet, uh, that can be accomplished only together because uh, it's a formidable task. And uh, of course, uh, uh, it uh, cannot be a task of uh, any single nation, no matter how powerful and capable this nation might turn out to be. The worst case scenario is that uh, we will have uh, a space race uh, and uh, uh, cooperation in space uh, uh, will uh, gradually uh, come to its uh, uh, end. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, it is not yet uh, uh, our fate. I think it's not something that we are doomed to witness. Uh, space uh, might turn out uh, to be uh, one of the ways to overcome uh, the disunity that we now see in many other areas. Okay, very good. Uh, uh, Harley, actually, let me ask you if you've got another question. Yes, uh, I do. Actually, the questions are coming in. Uh, this was also directed to Dr. Kortunov, but also anyone else on the panel. Uh, given the anti-Russian sentiments of Russiagate, uh, as well as the censorship that's going on in social media, the control of the media narrative by the corporate cartels of the media, and also the spying of the secret state, uh, do you see, do people in Russia and anywhere else in the world see the danger of the United States becoming a totalitarian state? Unfortunately, uh, the experience uh, of history suggests that people, or rather peoples, uh, hardly learn from history. Uh, so from time to time, uh, history repeats itself. And uh, I think that uh, there is no single society, there is no single political system, there is no single country in this world which can say that uh, it will never happen uh, with us. I think that uh, we all have to fight on the day-to-day -day basis. Uh, like I think it was uh, Goethe who said it's about uh, liberty and freedom that... Uh, you do not really deserve your liberty and your freedoms uh, unless uh, you are ready to fight uh, for them every day and uh, every hour of your life. Uh, I would say that uh, I do believe in the flexibility and in the adaptivity of the U.S. political system. I tend to be probably more optimistic about the United States than some of my American uh, colleagues are. I think that uh, definitely uh, there are very powerful uh, groups of the uh, political spectrum in the United States and uh, the power of ordinary people should not be underestimated. But yes, I think the challenge is there. Uh, we see this challenge all over the place. We see it in the United States. We definitely see it uh, in China. We see it in Russia, even in Europe. So nobody is uh, vaccinated against uh, future totalitarianism, especially if totalitarianism uh, it comes uh, in a kind of uh, technocratic disguise, which it is likely uh, to get. Thank you. Okay. Um, this next question is from Jose Vega. Some of you know him. 
And this is for uh, Dr. Kotunov, Ray McGovern, and for Helga, and for uh, 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 Mr. Uh, here's what it says. He says, thank you, Mr. Kotunov, for your presentation. To what extent do you think the history and culture of Russia has played, uh, what extent do you think the, 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 the history and culture of Russia played in Russia's ability to keep a cool head despite the provocations from uh, NATO? Uh, can Mr. McGovern answer that as well? And what role does a classical culture play in the deeper history of countries that allows them to rise from tragedy? And he is insisting I try to say spaziba. I don't know if I've said it right or not, which is thank you. So he insisted I must do this. <laughs> so I think you go first. I think you're muted. Here it is. Yeah. So if I were to be the first to answer to this question, let me say that uh, uh, I don't think that uh, Russia is immune to mistakes and to emotions. And uh, sometimes uh, Russians are probably more emotional uh, and more sensitive uh, than they should be, especially as far as the United States is concerned. Uh, uh, however, I, I also believe uh, that... Uh, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, the Russian leadership, and to some extent, the Russian people as well, are already used uh, to the um, unpredictability of the U.S. approach. You can expect almost anything coming from Washington, D.C., and you should be ready uh, to deal with the changing uh, environment. Uh, again, you know, I think that emotions are not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but, uh, of course, in international relations, uh, in my opinion, uh, you have to have a cool head in the first place. Okay. Ray, we'll go to you. Well, I would uh, thank my colleagues, especially Dr. Kortunov. Uh, I agree with him completely. Uh, you have to stay cool. And uh, I have to just tell you that uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is a very cool customer. Why is he less given to passion or emotion? It's very simple. The word is China. <laughs> I mean, he has China at his back now. This is the reverse of 50 years ago when the US under Nixon and Kissinger was able to play off the Soviet Union against China to very good effect. Not only the SALT one agreement where we agreed to ban anti-ballistic missiles to one site eventually, but also the agreement on Berlin, for Pete's sake, that came before the intractable agreement where we could never get the Russians to take over their proper role and prevent the East Germans from doing what they were doing. That happened even before the Nixon summit in May of, two th of <laughs> 1972. And I was there in Moscow uh, being, being conversant in how these things went down and being in some wonderment with respect to how clever Kissinger and Nixon were. Now that's no longer the case. 
if the U.S. statesmen, if I could use that word, uh, are unaware of that, if, as reflected in Biden's own remarks, what he told Putin and how Putin is in such a tough position because of being squeezed by China, if he really believes that, we're in real trouble here because that's not the correlation of forces now. So um, passion, and I agree with Dr. Kortunov that uh, you know, there's a place for emotion. But uh, you know, Putin has been there, done that. He knows what war is. Uh, he grew up in Leningrad, after all, right after the war. He knows what happened in that city. And he has people around him who are still almost as old as me, who remember those kinds of things. And I would add that I was a, I was born just a week before World War II. And that was the formative experience of my whole life, even though I was only six when the war ended. I traveled quickly to Europe and I learned a little bit about the world. So uh, I think we have a cool customer in Putin. What uh, really astounds me is how the National Endowment for Democracy and Bellingcat and the Atlantic Council that want to get rid of Putin. I mean, God, they're going to get rid of Putin. Well, hello. What happens after Putin? Would we have, I don't think we'd have as cool a customer. It's just like what happens after Bashar al-Assad? He's got to go. We got to get rid of him. Well, what happens after Bashar al-Assad? So the, uh, the outlook and the, uh, what will we call it? The, um, well, the outlook of, of the U.S. has to undergo uh, a profound change. But meanwhile, Putin is not going to be goaded into uh, reacting in a precipitous way unless, unless toadies like the British try to goad uh, him into reacting in an overweening way, as they tried just a couple of days ago, sending that uh, British frigate uh, into uh, the waters uh, of Crimea. So uh, nothing certain, but I think the main thing to worry about here is Western provocations and whether the Russian reaction and the Chinese reaction can be kept such that the, the Navy doesn't decide that, they, oh, they try these uh, really small nukes. Yeah, we'll try the small nukes. That is crazy. And I'm glad to see that Putin and Biden agreed that nuclear war cannot be fought because it cannot be won. Mr. Aneha, I'm uh, advised by uh, Jose that he wants to make sure that you're included in the answer to this question because he's interested in okay. Indian classical culture as well. So please. Uh, you know, uh, coming to, to Russia, because of the India-Russia connection has been very strong. I think uh, what uh, Mr. McGowan has said, that the Russian anti-war tradition is very deeply entrenched and goes beyond personalities, like Vladimir Putin. Having experienced the horrors of the Second World War and the combined losses of the rest of the allies were less than what the Soviet uh, uh, citizens uh, suffered. So I think that anti-war tradition in Russia is strong and coupled with that is also the capacity of deterrence. Uh, so when you combine the two, when you have the balance of terror in your favor, along with that uh, anti-war tradition. So I think the chances are that the Russians are going to remain cool when it comes to a provocation coming from the, from the West and from the United States. 
So I think that's that's I'm not really worried about that. I have a brief comment about the uh, the assumption that the Chinese and the Russians are going to go together in the form of a military de facto alliance in the face of something happening in Taiwan or elsewhere. I think I personally think that uh, the Chinese are far more pragmatic here uh, than the Russians are, and I don't think they're going to risk uh, into a war which can turn nuclear. And that's my own personal experience, having lived in China for about five years before coming to India last year. Uh, so, uh, and, and the second thing, I can give a very concrete example. Right now, India and China have a border standoff. But uh, while it's the standoff continues, the, it's the Russians which are giving us the, the most advanced weaponry uh, during this very phase itself. Uh, and India is soon going to receive the S-400 missiles as well. So I think while the bigger picture is right, that the Russians and the Chinese are working together, but there are, there are, there are deep nuances here. And I, don't, I think we'll be simplistic to say, to assume, that the Russians and Chinese are just going to come together if there's a provocation in Taiwan or, or elsewhere. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Helga? I think in all of this, one always has to look for the British manipulation because I think if one makes a account of all the major you know, sudden turns for the worse, um, you know, let it be the accusation against the Syrian government about supposed use of chemical weapon, which turns out was the white helmets, or let it be, you know, how uh, Trump was induced to make an airstrike against Syria in the middle of his summit with uh, Xi Jinping in Ma'alago, or I could probably make a very long list. You always find the hand of the British uh, either, you know, setting up somebody against the other one, manipulating the situation, and uh, the most recent one was the effort to, uh, you know, ruin the potential positive beginning of the Geneva summit between Biden and, and Putin by having this provocation uh, in the Black Sea. So I think the more people would be educated and, you know, a publication also um, of these manipulations so that people actually start to look for that, I think that that will be a very contributing factor to prevent the situation from getting out of control. Okay, Arlie, back to you. Yes, uh, I have a couple of questions on China, but before I do, I, I, I got a note from Andre that you may have to leave. Uh, do you have any final remarks you'd like to, to make before you go? Let me just, since this issue was raised, uh, let me uh, just uh, 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 say a few words about the Russian-India-China triangle. I think uh, it is a very sensitive issue, and uh, definitely uh, uh, Russia would not like to lose uh, India uh, in its attempts uh, to consolidate uh, its strategic partnership with China. Uh, I have to tell you that I met Minister Lavrov just a couple of days ago, uh, and he uh, said that uh, it would be particularly important uh, to uh, reach out uh, uh, to India uh, and to bring this relationship to a new level. Hopefully, uh, India and China will reconcile uh, their uh, relations in this way or another. I don't think that Russia or any other country can um, play a critical role 
uh, assisting India and China in doing that. But whatever uh, Moscow can do within the so-called RIC structure, uh, Russia, India, China, the triangular relationship, uh, uh, whatever it can do, it should do. And there are some opportunities uh, to promote a multilateral approach in Asia involving both uh, China and India, uh, for example, on issues around Afghanistan, uh, on uh, uh, transportation corridors in Greater Eurasia, uh, in uh, working together on the continental and the global commons. So I do hope that in the end of the day, the Chinese-Indian relations will uh, uh, turn out fine. Uh, and uh, that remains uh, the uh, most important factor, not only for Eurasia, but arguably uh, for the whole world. Thank you. Yes, we want to also thank you, uh, Mr. Kortunov, for being with us today. Uh, uh, I'll try it again. Spasiba. I don't know if that's better. <laughs> yep. so, that's, that, that's perfect. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. Thank you. Um, I would like to go for a minute to, if we can, an offering that we got from Dan Kovalik. Uh, Dan is a reporter. He's a journalist. He's presently actually in Venezuela, but he made a short, uh, which we're going to show here now. Uh, and this pertains to uh, the trip that he had just taken to Syria. Uh, we're going to, uh, and we get comments from the panel about it. Hi, uh, good day. Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Dan Kovalik. I uh, teach international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I'm also an author. Uh, probably the book that's relevant to this discussion is my book, No More War, How the West Uses Humanitarian Intervention to Violate International Law and Protect Its Economic and Strategic Interests. So I also uh, just got back from Syria. Uh, and I'm coming to you from Caracas, Venezuela. Um, and both countries can teach us a lot about the U.S. sanctions policy in general. But I really want to emphasize what's happening in Syria, but I'll, I'll relate it back to, to, to Venezuela as well since I'm here. So I was in Syria for a week during the presidential elections there. Um, in which, if people need to be reminded, uh, I think 78% of the population voted and uh, voted for Bashir al-Assad by a huge margin. And it was my impression that people were very excited about the elections. Uh, I was mostly in Damascus, but I went to Jobar, I went to Duma, I went to Malula. So I saw a good bit of Syria, I think. And I, I, what I witnessed was that people were excited to have an election after 10 years of war. And they felt that this was a sign of a return to normalcy, a return to peace. Um, and I think that most people feel that Assad represents peace and security, whatever you say about him and in other respects, that if it was a choice between him and the jihadists, which as Biden explained as vice president in 2014, it in fact was that choice. 
they were happy to go with Assad because uh, the support of numerous countries of these many and varied jihadist groups in Syria for well over 10 years has brought nothing but destruction to that country. I went to towns, again, like Jobar, which is 96% destroyed, Duma, which is largely destroyed. By the way, Assad went to Duma to vote is a sign uh, of, of, of solidarity with the people there. Uh, you know, and you see these cities that are completely wrecked to the ground. Now, in addition to the war, you have these sanctions. And what the sanctions are doing now are a few things. It's making it virtually impossible to do reconstruction work. In fact, as part of the Caesar sanctions, companies that would aid Syria in reconstruction are themselves sanctioned. And in addition, it's very hard to get the materials that they need to do the reconstruction. Most of the buildings that we're talking about that I saw in these cities were concrete buildings, row after row of destroyed concrete buildings. Now, first of all, they're going to have to be leveled. Uh, but also they're going to need concrete, which is a very uh, energy intensive uh, uh, material to to make. And again, right now, they don't have the means for the most part to do that. And so you don't see a lot of reconstruction happening because they simply don't have the means tell people to read Seymour Hersh's article, The Redirection. He wrote in 2007, saying that by 2005, the Bush administration was already laying the groundwork for what happened. He was already supporting Al-Qaeda-type groups in Syria to undermine the government. And of course, this effort blossomed in 2011, 2012, and went on for 10 years and brought this country, again, largely to ruin. So uh, first of all, I would say countries like the U.S. Uh, that supported these groups, uh, first of all, actually have a responsibility to help reconstruct. Instead, they are the U.S. is imposing sanctions that are, are preventing reconstruction. This, so this is really grotesque. Okay, so uh, Helga, if you'd like to comment, and then we'll ask if anyone else has a comment on what was just presented. Well, I, I think we should absolutely continue to make the point uh, what UN General Secretary Guterres said, that under conditions of a pandemic, the sanctions must be absolutely lifted against Syria, Iran, Venezuela, and all other countries who are <coughs> confronted with it. I think, you know, under conditions of, you know, the pandemic and the world famine, this amounts to murder. And I really think we need to arouse the conscience of the people. It's very difficult, you know, because people don't know about it. And, you know, we try to make a campaign to, to lift the Caesar sanctions. And we found that most people have no idea because the media did not report it. 
you know, there is a big indifference. But I, I want to reiterate the call to the viewers of this conference that you should absolutely help us to end this because this amounts to murder and genocide. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, Ray. Uh, I think we need uh, to direct uh, our attention to the motives behind the U.S. and Syria. When we invaded Iraq in uh, a war of aggression in 2003, people kept asking me, why did we do that? Why did we do that? We knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. We knew there were no ties between, Bush, between Hussein, Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. Why did we do it? I used to say, well, there were... I use the acronym OIL, O for oil, I for Israel, and L for logistics, the permanent military bases that we coveted and in, in, that we tried to get in Iraq. Now, people say, well, no, it was this, no, it was this, no, it was this one. No, it was all three, and it's foolish to try to figure out which was more than 33%, okay? Now, how about Syria? The answer is really very simple. Oil? No. Permanent military base? <laughs> no. Israel? Yeah. Now, you don't have to believe me about this. The New York Times bureau chief in Jerusalem in September 2013, when things were really getting out of hand, went to prominent Israeli officials and said, I, I need to understand what what's your what's your main objective uh, how would you like to see syria turn out and she was told by alon pincus former consul general in new york and other high officials well jody you know this just doesn't sound really good but our preferred outcome is no outcome and ruderin said could you translate that to could you tell, explain that he says well we look at it as a, a playoff game where you don't really want either side to win or either side to lose we prefer to see the blood hemorrhaging uh so that neither side sunni nor nor shia wins and it's impossible to get hezbollah in lebanon resupplied uh, so, you know, it doesn't sound really good, we realize, but our preferred uh, outcome is no outcome. Now, that was 2013. Mirabile dictu, wonder of wonders, Jody Ruderin's report was the feature article in the New York Times, page one on September 6th, 2013. She laid it all out. It's really pretty simple. And so what's the U.S. role here? The U.S. role is doing the bidding of Israel, pure and simple. If people don't get that, then they don't get it. It's really hard to understand unless you realize that, uh, that Israel wants no outcome to Syria and uh, that the U.S. has been doing their bidding for 10 years now, ever since we started saying Bashar al-Assad has to go, Bashar al-Assad has to go, Bashar al-Assad has to go. Bashar al-Assad has done chemical attacks. Those were lies. And when I saw that come up at the summit, when I heard President Biden say, well, I, I told Putin 
that the reason we're interested in Syria is because they violated uh, chemical weapons understandings and treaties. That's why, well, the Israelis and the Israeli surrogates in Washington probably told President Biden that it ain't so. Those were false flag attacks. And the UN or the UN inspectors, uh, there's a whole story behind that. But you have to you have to face these things face on. The reason I never get on US TV, of course, is because I say these things. But if you have to look at US policy towards Syria, Israel is 95% of the rationale. Mr. Aneha, I saw your hand up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very quickly. You know, I was the Middle East correspondent for about 12 years before I moved to China and have made frequent uh, visits to, to Syria. And I covered this 2006 Hezbollah versus Israel war. And when I landed in Damascus, I wanted a story. So the first thing I went was to the Red Crescent Society to find out where were the refugees who were streaming in from, from Beirut and uh, from, from Lebanon from the Becca Valley and then further down into, into Damascus. And one could see these refugees on the streets. So uh, the Red Crescent officer told me, sorry, we haven't established any camps. I said, then what, what, how are you going to deal with this flood of refugees? He said, we don't have to, because the Syrian people have just opened their homes for them and we don't need a refugee camp here. And that was what struck me, you know, the, the warmth and the hospitality and also the deep political consciousness of the Syrian people, uh, which, which was very, very remarkable, having covered other conflict zones. This was something quite unique. And uh, from Damascus, I moved by road to, to Beirut. Uh, the war had started big time by this time. And uh, there was an unwritten rule. Uh, the Hezbollah in, in uh, Beirut were bombing, were, 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 were sending missiles to Haifa in Israel. And from the Israeli side, the fire was basically coming to southern Beirut, which was the Hezbollah stronghold. But the Christian Maronite area, which was central Beirut, was being spared of this this uh, this fire for, uh, crossfire, which is going on between these two. But the rules changed when uh, I think Hezbollah fired into Tel Aviv, and I knew that central Beirut is no longer safe. So I called uh, the, the driver who had take, brought me from Damascus. I said, I need to go. And uh, he took me at five in the morning, but the bombing had already started. So he said, I want to get back. I said, you can't leave me in the middle of nowhere and get back. So please take me up to Tripoli, which is the border between uh, between uh, uh, Lebanon and Syria. And he left me there. I said, look, I got my visa stamped. I said, how do I go, go further from, from here to, to Damascus? And he just spoke to a Syrian family, which was going in a taxi. Uh, about me, this uh, this is a journalist from India who wants to go back to Damascus, and this family took me in. He said, "You just just come along with me," and then we drove from Tripoli down to Homs and you know right across Syria, and they brought me to my hotel. So at a personal level, I can see that Syrian people don't deserve this. What's happening to them? The destruction of their country, and I think this this uh, uh, demagoguery which is going on uh, against Bashar al-Assad. It absolutely, it's it's just pure crass geopolitics and nothing else. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marley. Yeah, uh, just one thing to to what Ray said. I want to go back to what Helga said earlier about the British. Before there was Israel, 
the British had a policy in the Mideast that, that no nation state should be allowed to develop as a sovereign entity. And this is, as uh, Anud was just saying, this is British geopolitics. And the Israelis play a role in this, as do the Saudis. But the real issue here is the U.S. has to stop following British geopolitical doctrines, uh, or we will, be, we will be in World War III and a nuclear war. I just wanted to add that. Okay, very good. Harley, do you have another question, by the way? I have others, but if, just keeping us... Well, on, on China, the two questions that, that are both probably longer, but, but should be taken up. Uh, does Biden and his top advisors, or do Biden and his top advisors believe the lies and disinformation on Xinjiang? And uh, that's one question. And how can we expose that these are lies? And secondly, is it possible that China released the COVID-19 as a bioweapon against the United States? This is being continually discussed in the U.S. Uh, what would be the intent of China in doing that? Uh, let me simply say that on that last question, uh, that will be taken up in panel four for those who are interested by uh, particularly uh, uh, General Clegg, who will be speaking at that point. So, Olga, any other, would you like to respond? Well, I don't know. I mean, first of all, there are new stories about this every day. Now the latest story is that the virus was discovered in China uh, months before. But there are other reports that the virus was discovered in Italy, in France, uh, even earlier. So I think, you know, I mean, from the standpoint of um, the intention, uh, if, you, if you look at the Chinese policy overall, what they have done in terms of their own population, in terms of poverty alleviation, is a civilizational contribution which is unmatched by any other country. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative has uh, provided for the first time for the developing countries' uh, perspective to overcome their own poverty. Uh, my whole estimation is there is nothing in the Chinese policy design which would give a, a reason uh, to do that. I think it's a malicious effort. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I mean, it's a part of the geopolitical othering, smearing uh, of a country, and it's being done against Russia and against China. And I just think, you know, then you have a very important virologist like from Germany, Professor Drosten, who said that he is, um, uh, he is one of the people who discovered SARS-1. He was immediately involved with the COVID-19 uh, and the coronavirus. He says he knows this virus so much that he excludes it for you know, biological uh, reasons. He says it's like when you change uh, a radio in a car, you, know, you don't change the whole car to get the radio in. And so he had a long te technical ex uh, explanation, which I'm not now in a position to repeat. But I don't think this is a, a settled case. And if there is an investigation, then it should be everywhere. You know, I mean, I, I frankly think this is a, a <clears throat> Uh, part of this false flag and, and denunciation 
but you know, if there are investigations, then all the labs should be investigated. You know, I don't think that is the origin of, of this particular pandemic, but I think it should stop poisoning the, the atmosphere of international relations. The, uh, uh, okay, Ray, go ahead. Yeah, I just added a little codicil here. Um, what's the worst thing you could uh, use a nation of at this period of time? Being responsible for COVID-19, trying to cover it up, being responsible for millions and millions of deaths around the world. Now, it's similar to blaming Russia for giving us Donald Trump. Now, there are, there are various views on this, I would add, but in my view, that's about the worst thing we could have accused the Russians of in 2016, and we did. So the media, the media is the thing here, and that's why when I say Mickey Matt, the military industrial congressional intelligence media, academia, think tank complex, I say media in all caps because it's the cornerstone. Now, the last thing I'll say on this is about, what, six, eight weeks ago, the media said, oh, it's probably the Chinese in that laboratory. The Chinese are responsible. They're, they're, they're covering it up. Now, to me, I can't say that that's true or false, but put yourself in the position of Z, of the Chinese leadership. Why does this come at this particular time? Why is the United States accusing us of doing the most heinous thing that's been done to anyone in decades? Well, I would be suspicious. I would say they're taking the gloves off here. Uh, they are really out to, to blacken us just as they blacken Putin. And uh, we have to take remedial action. We have to be ready. We have to be ready to retaliate in ways that they might not even expect. And that's why I'm really, really nervous about what happens near and around Taiwan. Okay, very good. Our next question is from former Ambassador Leonidas Chrysanthopoulos from Greece. And he says, congratulations to Helga Seplarouche for her analytical and detailed presentation of how the West fooled Gorbachev to accept the reunification of Germany under the condition that NATO would not be expanded. I have been raising this issue at international conferences that I have been attending for the last 10 years. The reply that I used to get was that it was a gentleman's agreement and not in written form and consequently not binding. I did not know that this agreement was included in minutes as Helga Seplarouche pointed out. I believe and I propose that these documents and the statements of Ms. LaRouche should be given the largest possible publicity. Just to add that in 1992, the leaders of, of, of the East Turkestan Liberation Movement were being hosted in Turkey. They made an official visit to the then President Osal. I was posted in Beijing then, and there was a crisis between Turkey and China that ended in having the Chinese ambassador to Ankara recall because he did not inform his government of the meeting. Uh, just said that the role of Turkey in the Xinjiang province uh, should be condemned. That's a, just an addition to the first statement. So just wanted to 
we relate that. If there's any comment, uh, Ray's got a comment. A brief one. I was in Moscow about six years ago and was talking uh, with one of Gorbachev's aides who was with him uh, in Malta with the summit with, with uh, uh, our president there and then with, uh, with them in Moscow when James Baker came in and sold this bill of goods, reunified Germany, and in return, we will promise not to move NATO one inch farther to the east. Now I said to Mr. Kubaldin, I said, why didn't you write that down? Gorbachev is being pilloried and defamed here in, in Russia because he, he didn't write it down. Why was it not written down? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, two reasons. We're talking February 1991. Warsaw Pact still existed. There was no real stability in the world. And it could not be written down because the Germans were sort of involved in this, right? <laughs> and we hadn't gotten a sign-off from Kohl or Genshaw. So that's reason number one, Mr. McGovern. But reason two is the more important one. And that is, we trusted you. We trusted you. So that was the way it was sold. And I'll just add that when I heard that Baker was asking for the reunification of Germany. Now, I could say this trite expression, some of my best friends are Germans, okay? I shuddered in fear. I didn't want the reunification of Germany. Nobody wanted it. That's why NATO was set up, to keep the U.S. in Europe, to keep the Russians out, and to keep Germany Delighted, all right? So if, if I didn't want the reunification of Germany, and I come from a country that lost 400,000 troops killed in World War II, how much more can you think that Gorbachev and Shevardnadze would have shuddered in disbelief that anyone would ask them for that? And in return, what was it? It was a promise. Should have been written down, was not. But there were good reasons why it wasn't written down. Main reason, and this has to do with what's really necessary now and what's missing, and that is very simple word, trust. Okay, Helga. Just, just one more comment. You know, I mean, since we were uh, really in the middle of this development, because we had, we were the only ones who had a plan what to do. Because Lynn, my husband, late husband, uh, had proposed, uh, had analyzed in. Uh, 84, that if the Soviet Union would stick with their Orgakov military plans, they would collapse in five years. And, you know, in 88, we made this uh, press conference at the Kempinski Hotel in Berlin, where he reiterated that and said, Germany will soon be unified with Berlin as the capital. Again, nobody believed that, but, you know, he designed this plan, you know, that the unified Germany should. Uh, develop Poland with Western technology as a model how to transform the Comic-Con countries which had severe economic problems at that time. 
So subsequently, you know, we had a plan ready when the Berlin Wall came down, which, you know, I wrote the first leaflet in on the 15th of November, 89. It was published with that idea that a unified Germany should, should uh, develop Poland and then the other Comic-Con countries. The, the German government uh, published the papers of this period in 97, that is much earlier than they normally would have been released. And they admitted that they did not have a plan what to do in the case of the German unification, despite the fact that that was the number one policy issue of the post-war uh, Federal Republic of Germany. But when it came to this point, you know, Herrhausen was assassinated on the on the 30th of November. Uh, that was a message to Kohl, you know, to not make any unilateral steps. I'm convinced that the assassination of Herrhausen was not done by the Bader-Meinhof coup because that third generation never was proven to even exist. This was a message uh, to, to Germany not to, to, to make more steps like the 10-point program which Kohl had issued just two days earlier. And when the first uh, <clears throat> EU summit occurred uh, in Strasbourg, I think it was on the 8th of December, uh, Kohl afterwards said this was the blackest hour of his life because everybody came down on him like a ton of bricks, accusing him of everything, you know, basically for the same reason which uh, Ray McGovern just mentioned, that people absolutely did not want to have a German unification. And, you know, the reason why our plan, the productive triangle, uh, and later the Eurasian land bridge was not implemented, is because geopolitical reasons. You know, there was absolutely no intention to have any possibility of Germany eventually working together with Russia because the plan was you know, that, that um, the Soviet Union was supposed to be turned into a third world raw material producing and exporting country. And Jeffrey Sachs went there uh, with the shock therapy instead of our program. And the industrial potential of uh, Russia was reduced from 91 to 94 to only 30%. So it was all geopolitics. And, uh, you know, I can, I can only say this is a, another incredible moment where the betrayal occurred and the destruction of trust. And there, I agree with, with Ray, uh, you know, is enormous. Just put yourself in the shoes of, uh, of the Russians. They agreed after all, you know, without the use of tanks, without military interventions, to the unification of Germany and look what they got from the West. So the destruction of trust is enormous and needs to be, you know, reconstructed and, and, and made, made good for. Okay. Harley? Yeah, here's a question. Uh, I think uh, Atul Aneha should take the question. It's from Argentina. Regarding the Russia-China-India relationship, how do you see the role of the BRICS for future global development and especially Ibero-America's inclusion in these plans? I see this as a good opportunity to strengthen this group and also uh, build up the countries in, in uh, South and Central America. Completely agree with that view that BRICS is really the future, the coming together of the emerging economies. And I would say China is an emerged economy already. Uh, 
uh, I think uh, already we have made uh, significant progress. The BRICS already has a multilateral bank called the New Development Bank. Um, and lending has started first among the five members, but also beyond that. And there's also a sister bank called the AIIB or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So that financial architecture is already being created for, for the BRICS. And I think the time has now come to move into other domains, uh, which, and of that, I think healthcare is going, should take a priority, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. Having said that, uh, there will be issues uh, uh, which are coming among uh, the member states. And I really worry about the India-China relationship, which are the key members of the BRICS Bank and of the AIB and the BRICS as a whole. That how do we, it requires international, it requires intervention and, and, and big time uh, diplomatic intervention because what's really happening now is there's enormous pressure coming on India because we have Chinese troops on the border uh, to, to have, a, and the Chinese economy is three times that of India. We have 5 trillion and they are, they are 15 trillion and growing. So there's, there is a mismatch here. And what's happening here is there is a lot of the, the U.S. and lobby is so strong that there is a push to equalize uh, the Chinese asymmetry, economic asymmetry, through what is being called the Quad, uh, which is India, and Japan, U.S. and Australia. And uh, I think the sooner this crisis between China and India is resolved, uh, the better it is for India because, frankly, uh, through a civilizational tradition, I don't see India becoming a member of any particular alliance. And uh, I remember after we had the nuclear test in 1998, we, 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 we declared the doctrine of strategic autonomy. And I think it would be very unfortunate if this, uh, uh, this crisis on the borders with China uh, continues for a longer time, that there may be some structural changes uh, which, which are being made which will militate against what we were talking about, the rise of the BRICS and, 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 and the further evolution of the BRICS into areas beyond where they are currently cooperating. But as a concept, as a long-term historical uh, process, I think this is, this is the way forward. Uh, and in the long run, BRICS has a lot of promise and potential. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're moving sort of toward the end of our question series. We still have a bit to go, but I just wanted to reference that. This is a question from Spain. Um, the incident with the British destroyer, the Defender, demonstrates that the empire is losing its mind, as Ray McGovern has emphasized. Do you think that as a consequence, they felt they had to intervene in a desperate attempt to recover their control? And may this at the same time signify that Great Britain will keep intervening in more provocations with the hope of justifying a forced integration of Ukraine into NATO. So that is the question. Uh, maybe we can start with you, Ray, and then go to Helga. Sure. Uh, I guess to the degree there is some disagreement on the British role, I make no mistake, I'm of Irish heritage, so I am completely fluent with British imperialism. Uh, to the degree there's any difference, it's uh, my view that Boris Johnson uh, asks the White House for permission before he goes to the bathroom. So I don't see this uh, HMS Defender incident 
as a British provocation. I see this as a British client, a British vassal, acting on behalf of that part of the Mickey Mat that Biden does not necessarily control. And this is a central lesson that I've taken away from the last decade or so, and not only I, but Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin as well. The president is not fully in charge. He can make agreements and they can be violated by our military as happened in Syria and elsewhere. And he can uh, allow the British to do this little probing here, see what happens if they go into Crimean waters and the British will salute and just do it. So um, this, this suggests to me that the logic, the explanation is correct, uh, that after the summit, which was reasonable, re reasonably respectful, uh, there are forces that still want to get Russia to be the enemy. Because how can you build this and how can you build F-35s and all these submarines and uh, aircraft carriers if there's no credible enemy, Russia fulfills that role just perfectly for those who wish to profiteer on war. Last thing I'll say here is that I don't always agree with Pope Francis, <laughs> but he had it exactly right when he appeared before the U.S. Congress about four years ago. And he said, you know, the main problem in this world is the blood-soaked arms trade. Now, what happened? The senators and representatives all got up and said, oh, yeah, oh, and then they looked in their pocket to see if the last envelope from Lockheed was there or this one from Raytheon. I mean, it was giving hypocrisy a bad name. But the Pope is right. It's greed. Now, I love Helga's hope. Hope is indispensable. And things can turn around. Look what happened in the 80s with Gorbachev coming on. Perestroika. Now, perestroika, you know, rebuilding or reimagining things. What must precede that? Glasnost. That's the media. That's people who have to realize this is really crazy stuff. Our, infantry, our, our bridges are falling apart. There are opportunity costs to building the F-35 that doesn't even work very well. So that perestroika, that... Uh, that what's the word? Uh, there's a word for uh, change, metanoia. Since we're talking about hubris and other Greek terms, metanoia means to turn the, the, the mind upside down and and be uh, be amenable to other solutions. So hope is necessary. Thank you, Helga, for always expressing our way out of this kind of stuff. But the Mickey Matt is the one that sent that. Uh, USS the HMS Defender into Crimea waters. And we can expect more of that because resistance is very strong, uh, making Putin anything other than the devil they have made him out to be. Okay, I'm sure Hug has a response. Well, um, I think concerning Boris Johnson, I would agree with you because you know I, he doesn't strike me as a, a big genius and designer of policies. But I think that the role of the British Empire, if you take it back you know, for several hundred years, I think it would be a very fruitful competition to argue this question out in terms of the colonial policies of the British, uh, the reason why the American Revolution was fought against 
the British Empire, the effort by the British to reconquer the United States first militarily when they realized that that was not possible. They, they started to uh, recruit the political establishment to convince them that if they would step, that they would adopt the British Empire as a model of government, you know, then you, you, it's not so simplistic, you know, it, it's the button pulled here or there. It's a method of corruption. You know, when we say British, it may be very well that somebody goes around as an American, but if his head is controlled by British philosophy or ideology, I should say, you know, it still fits the profile of the British Empire. But that is a useful discussion, and I would like to invite you that we, uh, that we fight this out in each case and then make the foods available to the world public, which can only profit from such a debate. All right, fine. All right, go ahead, sir. Well, yes. Yeah, you know, I basically have one question. I just find the timing of this incident very curious, that soon after you have this summit between Biden and Putin, that you have this incident coming in. Is this a first attempt to sabotage the, and prevent that momentum from building? Just a question. If Ray or Helga can just respond, I'm just curious. I'm sorry, I did not acoustically understand the last sentence you said. They're asking for you to respond as to whether or not the what we saw with the incident may have been an attempt to sabotage what had been essentially agreed or the atmosphere of agreement between Putin and Biden? I think that is, uh, you know, 99.9% probable. You know, I mean, I think the, the baby step of having, you know, this summit in Geneva, you know, which, which was really a break. I mean, just think about and how much effort was going into prevent any normal relation between Putin and Trump whole Russia gate, you know, the when when they finally met in Helsinki, uh, which was regarded as a big success by both sides, all hell broke loose afterwards when Trump returned to the United States. So I think this was an attempt to squash uh, a nascent relationship before it could develop into any kind of strategic stability. I think the, you know, I mean, knowing the field of of the geopolitical confrontation, I, I, I stick to 99.9% yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, Harley, you have anything? I have one last question. This is for Helga, but I think it's, it's worth taking up. How would you evaluate that the European Union leaders turned down the proposal of Merkel and Macron to invite Putin for talks to Brussels? Well, I think you have you have a lot of uh, people, you know, I mean, some of these political leaders are not exactly genuine, you know, I, I mean, it's now too short a time to go into it. But for example, you know, and some of the I have made acquaintances with some of these people and, you know, their allegiance, uh, for example, you know, the Baltic states, Poland, I mean, they had, when when Poland had an exiled government in, in London, you know, they have built up structures in these countries which go very, very deep and they play on historical animosities, you know, in this case against Germany, against Russia. Uh, 
So I think this is much more complicated. And for example, you know, the problem is that this question of the British Empire is a question of method. For example, after the uh, Congress of Vienna, uh, when Metternich uh, worked uh, to re-establish the Holy Alliance with the other monarchs and top-level aristocrats of Europe, I mean, they tried to suppress any nationalist impulse. Like they tried to undo what the German classics had done, what the Russian reformers had done against von Humboldt, von Stein. And, you know, when they tried to put together this holy alliance, it was an oligarchical order. These people, Betternisch, Kastlere, all of them did not have national allegiances. They belonged to this European oligarchical structure. And I think that that is uh, something to understand about this question of the empire, because the empire is not a British empire in terms of the British people. The empire is a system of running the world according to a certain model of oligarchical control, whereby a small elite is uh, having all the privileges and the aim is to keep the populations as backward as possible because then you can control them better. And that is, that is what we are seeing here. Unfortunately, Europe is still in very large part you know, run by people who belong to this oligarchical mindset. And nothing is more easy than to pull the strings. Like in case of Italy, you have Draghi. Uh, you have other people who can be quite easily pulled into this reign, uh, into this uh, rein in, into this uh, mindset. So I think that the problem is really the the oligarchical uh, structure of Europe, and you know the people have to. You know, I would really hope that people wake up um, because if they would understand how close we are to the extinction of civilization and if it ever comes to this Taiwan scenario, you know, I mean, this is the end of civilization. And I'm convinced that if people would understand that, there would be a world revolution. Um, and I think maybe exactly that is what is necessary. Not in the term, not, not in terms of the French Revolution, but in terms of the American Revolution, where people establish self-government and the constitutionality over politics. Okay, there's a hand up. Ray has got his hand up. We can't avoid it. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> can't avoid it. Uh, no, I would just second what uh, Helga just said, and she knows chapter and verse about what happens in Europe. Uh, you know, just like the animal farm, uh, the, the nations in the EU are not all equal. Well, they're all equal, but some are more equal than others. And Germany and France are more equal than others because they're much stronger. And now, worse still, they're getting uppity. <laughs> The Germans are going to complete the North, North Stream number two. My God, against all warnings from Washington. And the French come up with these great ideas. And the think that France and Germany could decide to have their own summit with Putin, well, that's unthinkable because the other countries are much more vassal-like to the United States. And all Washington has to do is cough and all these other oligarchic countries will, will, will 
will take their handkerchief and say, no, 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 France and Germany, you can't do this because we're a community now and we will prevent it. That's how I read this. I'd be interested in whether Helga thinks I'm right. You are saying it with other words, you know, but essentially the same point. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. We have uh, sort of two questions, and they're they're uh, you'll hear it. One is directed for you, Helga, specifically, and then as a general question. The first is from a young person in Pennsylvania who says or asks, in addition to the Carnavala painting, which was shown earlier. Uh, by in your uh, slideshow, what else can influence us in designing cities better suited toward greater rail infrastructure and a world health system? Are the Chinese megalopuses something we should be imitating in part or full? Congratulations to the Schiller Institute and to all the speakers. So that's a very specific, individuated question, Helga, directed at you. And then there's a uh, a, a larger sort of question. Uh, let us speak about. Uh, India's rise from 1947 to now, we have a nation where great mass murder had occurred against the people by British colonialism. And we had great divisions, religious divisions, which existed. But that nation now has a space program that is the pride of the world and of India. Gandhi used a method that no one believed in, but he changed the world and his nation, even as he said he was only doing his own experiments with truth, mostly on himself, and even often failed. This conference is about the coincidence of opposites, but also about the complex nature of culture and the problem that progress is not predetermined. Societies move backwards as well as forwards, and sometimes they can move forward into oblivion. How do we use this moment in time to change how people think about what there it is that they should do to move society ahead. So uh, let's start with you, Helga, on that, and then others may have answers as well. Well, on the first question, you know, I think that um, the reason why I choose this picture is because I wanted to give a sense of the beauty of Renaissance uh, buildings, the the golden mean as a as a basis of the architecture and you know i think that if one looks around in the different cultures one finds incredibly beautiful architectures um, city building uh, for example and atul uh, will probably have something to say about that i was in jaipur and they have built i think it was either the city council or the mayor's house or the governor's house in the tradition of the Maharajas, and it's a beautiful building, but built with modern, modern um, techniques. So I think if one wants to have a new paradigm and a dialogue of culture and a new renaissance, um, I think one would look around in the best productions of all cultures of the world, and we could really make this world much, much, much more beautiful. And that was just a, uh, you know, just a hint of, of how to go about it and go away from these ugly glass uh, concrete blocks, you know, which Houston is the worst example. Uh, but I think it, it's important that beauty in the environment is also what, you know, makes people thinking more beautiful. 
So that was the first question. Maybe I take the second afterwards, uh, after other people have spoken. Okay, very good. So, Mr. Aneha, let's go to you. You know, regarding India's rise, I think it's an unequal rise, to be very honest, because while we have an excellent space program and, uh, you know, we started uh, working on atomic energy way back in 1949, so there are these centers of excellence which, has, which have been built. IT is another success story. Uh, biotech. These are, these are domains where India has really done well. But I think after we have been hit by the second COVID wave, what has come to light is that we need to spend more on our health infrastructure. Uh, the tragedy has been too deep, and I don't want to elaborate here, but you make a call anywhere uh, to friends and you know, and you see, you hear about somebody passing away or somebody having complications after recovering from COVID. So the healthcare system really needs to be done up. I think India has to, if it has to consistently grow, uh, and uh, the potential is, of course, there. Uh, it has to spend on infrastructure. I mean, we need to go full throttle on developing our roads, railways, ports, uh, because the manufacturing sector in India has to grow now. We have services which are excellent, and we have great stuff going on in pharmaceuticals and healthcare and vaccines. But the basic feedstock, which will give our people mass employment, is really uh, the manufacturing sector. And I think that to flourish uh, and being competitive in a global scenario, the, the, the foundations for that is world-class infrastructure. So I think we need to look at India in a holistic way. And uh, uh, the other dimensions have to sort of come into this bigger picture uh, to, to really for India to, to realize its full potential. Thank you. Sure. So what we'll do now is we'll actually take this as an opportunity because we have to summarize. So, Ray, we're going to go to you for what are essentially final remarks, if you have a response to the two questions or anything else you'd like to state. And then we'll do sort of a, a, a wrap up. Sure. Well, I think when we talked about India just now uh, and uh, the need to develop more funding for infrastructure costs. Uh, there's a paradigm here. There's a, there's a comparison with the United States. Where does so much, where do so many billions of dollars go to the Mickey Mat, to weapons industries, to people, to, to F-15s that don't work, okay? Now, there needs to be a metanoia to use that the Greek term again means to say, take your mind and turn it upside down and realize that you have to you have to be aware of what economists call opportunity costs. That's a fancy word, simply two words, simply for saying, what could we do in this school district? What could we do in this healthcare system with the money that we waste on defense? Now, I suggest, although I don't know that the situation is quite comparable in India. And I would suggest that if China and India could broker some kind of deal where they could be a little less hostile to one another, those opportunity costs could come in large and could fund infrastructure projects. 
Uh, the last thing I'll say here is that uh, I think I'll sound like a broken record, but media is the key. When I watch the Soviet Union fall apart, it was because Western media was penetrating and, and Russian people could see that the, a different world was possible. That was one of the main reasons. That's why Glasnost was possible and eventually Perestroika. That's what we need now, oddly, ironically, in the West. We need some way to get the Western media to recognize that they're supposed to serve the truth. It's a tall order, but I think that it's up to us to make sure we hold them accountable. And one best way would be to make sure that this forum is available to as many people as we could possibly make it available to, because I find the discussion incredibly good. My hat's off to Helga for arranging it. And uh, I hope that other such discussions can penetrate to people who will realize that they're being had by most of their tax dollars going to uh, creating, a, uh, creating defense against a scare that doesn't exist. Thank you very much. And thank you, Ray. Mr. Aneha, any final thoughts? Well, it's been an excellent discussion and really learned so much. Uh, I have uh, one point probably to make that, you know, we are looking at a post-COVID, post-geopolitical world to really, because that seems to be the root cause, which is causing so much of the problems. I just have a brief comment here on, on the Xinjiang situation, for example. I mean, uh, people have been, uh, I don't know what the human rights situation there is, period. But one thing is very clear, that there is enormous geopolitics there which is going on, because your entire Belt and Road uh, connectivity projects, rails, etc., all pass through Xinjiang. And if there's a cold war between uh, US and China, I mean, that is the jugular which the Americans will go for, because that really, in a way, sabotages the belt and the road if you if you make uh, Xinjiang unstable. Apart from connectivity, it's, it's central to China's energy security. You have these vestige pipelines which are coming from Central Asia, getting this enormous reserves of gas from Kazakhstan and elsewhere, which go straight into the industrial heartland of China, which is Shanghai and Guangzhou. So if you again, you know, target uh, Xinjiang, maybe on human rights ground, etc., it again hits China, China in a very fundamental way. So I think this is just to illustrate that the geopolitics is such a such a bane, and which is coming big way in whatever constructive, uh, uh, you know, ideas or, or or frameworks we have in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Helga. Well, to, to the first question, you know, what can be done in this moment uh, to change the situation? I think that, you know, the question of the world health system is, in my view, the make it or break it point simply because it addresses the self-interest of the vast majority of the world population. And, you know, there is already, you know, a new thinking um, you know, for example, many of the developing countries no longer accept the old paradigm, but they are very optimistic of taking the future of mankind in their own hands. And I, I have said that many times in the past, but I 
I have not changed my mind on it, that we are in an epochal change, not just a little change, but a change of an era, an epoch, which will be as different as the one between the Middle Ages and the modern times, characterized by the Italian Renaissance. The old you know, time was the superstition, the peripatetics, the scholastic, idiotic fights, uh, you know, self-flagellants, and a whole set of axioms of thinking which were doomed. And I think that a lot of the thinking of the old paradigm, you know, the geopolitical domination, the, the oligarchical mindset, that is like the Middle Ages and has as much chances for long-term survival as the scholastic fight, how many angels can sit on the top of a needle. But, you know, obviously it does require a mobilization of many, many people to discuss what should be the future like in 100 years from now. So I, and I appreciate what, what Ray said about the forum of the Schiller Institute, because, you know, we are trying to have these conferences, not as individual events, but to increase the number of people who start to think in terms of a deeper epistemological view on matters. And, you know, we are trying to build it as a, you know, alliance of people who to spread the word, to spread this kind of philosophical approach. Uh, for example, we have several organizations co-streaming this event, and that can be replicated. You know, people can afterwards, uh, you know, put the entire program on their web pages. You can use the social media. You can, you know, spread the word. And I would actually invite you to do that because, you know, I mean, I'm an optimist, but I'm not a fool. I think the dangers are enormous. You know, I think there is something in the human nature, um, and I agree with Leibniz that a great evil always brings forth a greater good. So it's a struggle, you know, and I want to invite you because um, if you join this alliance, I think we can move mountains. Harley Schlanger, Atua Aneha, Ray McGovern, Hogasat LaRouche. Thank you very much for this panel and thank all of you who are with us today for this panel. Our second panel will begin at 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It's called The Real Science Behind Climate Change, Why the World Needs Seven More Terawatts of Energy. So that'll be happening in about an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes. And we'll see you back there at that time. Hey, I want to thank you uh, all for tuning in. It was a great discussion on today's uh, conference. It was great to see Harley Schlanger and want to thank the Schiller Institute. And don't forget the second uh, panel will begin at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, Standard Time. Uh, jump over to the SchillerInstitute.com uh, and you will find there the link to the second panel it will be there on their YouTube channel. Um, again, I think it's just you know very interesting times that we're living in. And want to thank everyone. I very lively chat room today. So thank you all for tuning in. And again, I want to thank. This was simulcasted on on, on numerous platforms. So roguenews.com, the Gadfly. Everyone have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. <laughs>